You've seen those movies where they say, make my day, or I'm your worst nightmare. Well, listen to this one. Rubber baby buggy bumpers. Ha! You didn't know I'm gonna say that, did you? Your move, creep. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Film Feast podcast. I am your host, Matt Bledsoe, uh, and on this episode, we are talking about Sudden Death from 1985. Uh, to help me talk about it, I am joined by a first-time guest to the show, uh, but someone I'm very excited to finally get to talk to, uh, Jackson Boren. Jackson, how you doing? Great, Matt. Thanks for having me on. I feel like this has been a long time coming, and I'm very excited to finally be on here to talk with you. Yeah, it no, it has been a long time coming. And uh, we've been Twitter friends for I feel like quite a while. And uh, you post great stuff all the time. I think if anyone's saying this and follows you on Twitter, uh, I feel like they know they can count on you for some great like, I would say mostly 80s, 90s movie content. Is that fair to say? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that's kind of where like I live and breathe as the 80s and 90s. But you know, I I'm still a, you know, a fan of movies kind of coming out now and modern stuff. But it just is always fun to kind of revisit, revisit those things that we grew up with and that we enjoy. I, I feel like as I've been listening to Film Feast and, you know, we, we connected on Twitter, I, I feel like we're kind of sort of kindred spirits, not just because of our taste in movies, but because of our journey to our current relationship with movies. Um, I remember you, you talking about, you know, your time at UNC Film, and that's kind of similar to my undergrad experience and how I you know, I, I studied film and communication in undergrad and then graduated and was, was always kind of like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm going to end up being a filmmaker. But then as I got into my career, it just kind of settled into, yeah, like I just enjoy movies and enjoy kind of, you know, taking them in and consuming movies and talking about them. And, and Twitter kind of created the space for me to do that with others who are interested in very specific movies, not just the, the big populist stuff, but stuff that's kind of like lost and forgotten or underappreciated. Yeah, yeah, it's nice. And I, I think we're kind of the same uh, kind of Twitter circles where people are, I, I think, almost universally very nice and friendly yeah. and like want to talk about a lot of the same stuff, but have a nice variety of things. Um, so, yeah, it's good. It's good stuff. Um, right. And I feel like you keep it positive. Um, also, and I can finally tell you in person that I it took me so long to realize what your Twitter profile picture was. I, just thought, <laughs> I thought for I just kind of looked at it. You know, they're very small when you kind of pass by them. And I thought it was like a picture of Freddy Krueger. <laughs> yeah. Once I zoomed in, I and I just was like, oh, my God, it's City Slick. <laughs> like, I, know, I thought it was really funny. That it took me like so long to put that together that I was like, oh, that's what his picture is. But um yeah. This is part of the getting to know people process. Uh, their Twitter, their Twitter avatars. But um, I was like, I got to tell them this in person. But uh, yeah, no. but yeah. So I mean, it's and back to the what you said about just kind of you know, it's like you want to make movies, and then like 
now I think I just needed the outlet to talk about them, which didn't really even exist like it does 20 years ago or even like 15 years ago. I mean, it's like um, and now that I have that outlet, it's like, oh, I'm fine. This is all I needed. Like, I didn't need to go <laughs> make a movie. But um, but the, the talking about them is just is just fine for me. <laughs> yeah, likewise, I was, you know. I was really interested in that and I was, you know, am I going to be a filmmaker or not? And then when I, I ended up starting working in advertising and communication and that led me to this place where I was like, well, I need, I need some place to connect with others who are excited about movies and are interested in, you know, hashing the stuff out and talking about stuff that we we've always loved. And, and so, you know, when, once I started not only connecting with others on Twitter, but discovering these podcasts that were, uh, dipping into different genres and and you know, different filmographies that was just like it was perfect i was like this is where i meant to be <laughs> this is the place uh yes. good stuff good stuff so um i'm glad you're finally here on the show um and uh, as usual i was going to just start off and ask you if you watch anything recently you want to talk about good bad okay you know anything like that <laughs> so yeah um well actually I, you know i think i mentioned to you a few weeks back when when i first went um, but ET uh, on IMAX. I know you know they announced a couple months ago that they were re-releasing ET and Jaws on IMAX for the 40th and 45th anniversaries. And the second I saw this, I was like, "Got to get my tickets." I'm going. I had not seen ET theatrically. Um, for those of you, you know, who, who are listening, who you know may or may not um, follow me on Twitter or you know, know me as well. I'm a huge fan of repertory theater, getting to go back and watch films that I was either too young for or just didn't make it around to seeing the first time they were in theaters. E.T., as it were, came out the year before I was born. I was born in 83. So, you know, my introduction to it was Christmas of 88, which it took so long for E.T. to finally come out on VHS, but got the VHS for Christmas that year. And I always have to mention the green spine for the physical media heads was the original E.T. release on VHS, watched it as a five-year-old on this little 16-inch box television, and I was just like, um, so 34 years later, I'm sitting in this IMAX theater about to watch it on a 70-foot screen, and I'm just in heaven. Um, I'm going to geek out here for a second. Uh, so like the most intimate scenes and nuanced details that I remember uh, you know, growing up watching they're so palpable in, in new ways when you're in, immersed in this like IMAX experience. It feels like, I don't know, it feels like a lot of people online sort of dis, have dismissed ET as like, oh, it's Spielberg's kid movie or it's sort of a relic of nostalgia. And, you know, we love it because we, you know, we first saw it as kids, which, you know, Hook gets that criticism as well. Um, maybe this is because of the cultural footprint of E.T., you know, hasn't had the shelf life of something like Star Wars, where there's like, you know, IP surrounding it every few years. But when you when you sit down in 2022 and you watch this thing um, as it was meant to be seen on a big screen, it just really reminds you of why E.T. was just this like phenomenon. And it's like, yes, Spielberg was, you know, a master. And this is like a perfect example of it. Yeah, I. Uh... I, I sadly I have missed the uh, ET and IMAX. Is it still? Is it is it a was it a one weekend thing? I don't know. It's it's still out there. I think I've seen some people talking about it this weekend that they were still going to see it because um, some people were doing like the ET Jaws double. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Uh -huh. 
Yeah, so the remaster was was beautiful. Uh, one of the things I always took for granted that you know I kind of caught differently this time around was Drew Barrymore's performance. I mean, it's like I feel like we get so many kid performances nowadays that we're just like kind of took for for granted. But she's just this really sweet, nuanced uh, take in that movie. Um, yeah, and then like afterwards, I'm just sitting in this empty IMAX theater as people are filing out, you know. And just soaking in this John Williams score as the credits roll. And I'm just like, this is the first time I've like stayed this long without like a post credit scene. You know? <laughs> mm-hmm. And I'm just like, this is, this is incredible. So yeah, E.T. Okay. was, was a huge one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I was somebody who underrated it probably till like last year. Was it, I can't remember, maybe it was early this year. Lindsay and I did an episode of Shock and Awe with E.T. and Mac and me, <laughs> which is, yeah. uh, and, uh, and I was like, wow, E.T. is even better than I remember. I mean, I loved it as a kid. And then I kind of went through the period. I think it was, I've heard this a lot with, in general with Spielberg, where I kind of was like, oh, he's too mainstream. It's kind of what I felt like. I, I was too cool for Spielberg. You know, it was like, yeah, um, yeah. And then E.T. was like kind of his kid's movie. And I really didn't, you know, I was like, hey, E.T. But it was really great. And it, I feel like it really, and I feel like someone just said this recently, but I agree that it, it maybe is like the most uh, Spielberg movie. It feels like the most personally his movie. Um, yeah, just the yeah, themes it's dealing totally with, that. yeah, just like the themes it deals with, and just the, the everything about it is just very him. Like I feel like if it's like 100% Spielberg, um, and yeah, it's great. I, uh, I, you know, kind of, I kind of want to watch it again. Actually, it was funny. I had to watch it in years. I did the episode, with Lindsay, and I was like, why am I not watching this like yearly? What am I doing? <laughs> so, yeah, you still you kind of take it for granted. It's always there. You're like, yeah, I grew up with ET. I I know how good it is. But when you like go back and watch it, especially in a theater like that, it really really resonates. You know why it was as big as it was, and that it's it's not just the hype. It's it's really that good. Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, I was saying, oh, so wait, did it really take six years for ET to hit VHS? Is I that believe we... so. I think that's what happened because I I was going back after I I I think I was digging through some old boxes and stuff to find some old VHS of mine. Found it and I was like, I wonder when this came out because I got it randomly at Christmas in '88 and I think I think my grandma had gotten it because it was like brand new and she said, Oh yeah, this is like this new VHS. It finally came out and then I sure enough, sure enough I went back and looked and it came out in '88 on VHS. Wow, yeah, I'm looking. I'm Google it too. It it says that uh, it was eventually released in '88. That's so bizarre that they held it off from VHS for that long. <laughs> like, yeah, they're um, like, I think Return of the Jedi some, had something like that as well, where there was like a delay in release. And you know, at that time when VHS was not just like this widespread format, they were just kind of trickling in like a few every year. You know, I don't know how many every year, but it wasn't like you just had everything all available. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, we take for granted now, I think, almost how fast things hit uh, yeah. on demand and Blu-ray. <laughs> like, um, yeah. it's like a 45-day turnaround now. Like, Elvis just came out last week, and it opened in late June or July. Like, um, yeah, like, I mean, things get out so quickly now, which is great. Don't get me wrong, but it's like, you should really appreciate that more. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Um, not waiting six years to watch E.T. at home. <laughs> so, um Okay, great. Yeah, E.T. is is still fantastic. I agree with you. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, another yeah. one, another one that I kind of rediscovered. Um, have you heard of One Good Cop? My God, it sounds so familiar. It's is a, that? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a 1991 movie uh, with Michael Keaton. 
And, oh, okay. I was thinking of the James Woods movie, which is called Cop, I think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. This might have been around the same time, but yeah, One Good Cop was like this random movie I had discovered when I was going back. I knew I had seen it a long time ago, but um, it was directed by Haywood Gould, who hasn't really done a ton of stuff. I think he directed like three or four movies, but this was like the most well-known one, and he wrote Cocktail and Port Apache the Bronx. Uh, but this was like an early Hollywood pictures release. And um, anyone who knows me knows I have like an, an affinity for like Touchstone and Hollywood pictures releases. I had a friend who was like, oh, you're like the mayor of Touchstone Twitter. Like, <laughs> you're always like, and I'm like, no, no, no. Like, these, these were like these uh, Disney subsidiaries in the 90s where like if Disney wanted to produce a movie, but it was like slightly too adult to be put out um, under the Walt Disney Pictures banner, it was like, okay, it's going to Hollywood pictures or it's going to touchstone and um yeah one good cop was one of the first ones to come out on hollywood and i had almost forgotten about this movie until uh last month i think they did a, a hollywood pictures ranking where i went through all the movies that they had done they did like 80 or 85 movies in the in the 90s and i just ranked my top 20 and this one i remember enjoying but it's this like tiny little movie that came out in between batman and batman returns mm -hmm. on keaton's filmography and it's just this sort of like this charming little crime drama where uh, it's like a character-centered uh, movie that puts Keaton's acting chops kind of out in the, the foreground. And um, he's just, just really charismatic, you know, really good. Um, Keaton's this cop who loses his partner who's played by Anthony LaPaglia. And he's killed in a drug war. And Keaton adopts his, his partner's kids and then has to manage sort of creating this new life for them and taking care of them while still in this like intense conflict with local drug dealers in New York. Um, Benjamin Bratt's in it. Uh, Rene Russo was really good in it. And it's just, yeah, it's just this great movie. If you didn't, if you didn't see it the first time, it kind of disappeared, you know? Um, and it's, it's lighthearted in parts in a way that like a Disney movie would be, but then it's also, has these shootouts and like run-ins with the gangs. And I just felt like it balanced those two worlds pretty well. Um, it wasn't really a hit, which is probably why it disappeared pretty quickly after it came out. But um, yeah, it's not really, it's not even really streaming anywhere. I had to um, rent it just to a digital rental and yeah, caught up on that one. So that one was interesting. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, I've seen the poster, uh, but I, never yeah. seen the movie in here no one talk about it and it's crazy yeah. it comes out between batman and batman returns it's just like this yeah. movie that's kind of like evaporated it's like it's just yeah. kind of like it exists but no one talks about it um sounds interesting it sounds like it's trying to balance like a like a family drama but like then like an action cop movie almost if right, I, I mean right and yeah, it's like you said you you'd heard of it or seen the poster it's definitely like the one of those like i always call them like video store movies where it's like you definitely saw this poster or this, this video in the video store a million times. You know? I was going to say, uh -huh. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think I recognize the VHS from my video store. Um, yeah. That's crazy. Okay. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. Cause like, again, no one talks about it. So that's nice that you put it back. People's radar. So. Yeah. So yeah. One good cop. Um, another one I saw recently was uh, two if by C, uh, which is a, it's like a 1996 uh, rom-com with uh, Sandra Bullock and Dennis Leary. Uh, this is another one that doesn't really exist. Like you might have, you might have seen the marketing for it when it came out. It was like somewhere right after the net, they were, you know, giving Sandra Bullock a ton of 
ton of roles. And this is like one where she uh, definitely headlined it. And I think Dennis Leary had written it and was just like, she was the star, but he was, he was in it with her. Um, I always kind of enjoy mo finding movies like this that have like gone under my radar or that I just forgot existed. Uh, and this is like, this is a small uh, rom-com, like I said, where Leary is like a thief from Boston and Sandra Bullock's his girlfriend. And they're trying to like settle down and get out of their life of crime. But then they take on like one last job to steal a $4 million painting and they have to deliver it to like a small New England town. And it's just sort of them as like fish out of water criminals living in someone's house um, while they're on vacation. And they're just trying to get this painting to the buyers. And it's it came out, like I said, like right between the net and a time to kill. Mm -hmm. But it feels like it feels like a movie that was so small. And even like the way it's filmed and, and put together, it feels like a movie that Bullock would have done like before Speed or before Demolition Man. And for some reason, the only thing I remember about the marketing for it was that like uh, Bullock had put like blonde highlights in her hair. So she was now like a blonde in this movie. And that was a thing that they were marketing. Um, but yeah, it's like a really like lighthearted, goofy story that definitely has, you know, a few problems, but it's overall, it's it's pretty entertaining for a romantic comedy from the mid-90s. There's a few things that don't age very well, but overall, it's it's just a fun movie to just throw on. Um, one of the most hilarious things about this one is Bullock and Leary are going like all in on Boston accents that are not entirely <laughs> like not entirely great but they're just going for it so you're like okay I respect it <laughs> um, <laughs> so they're leaning into the accent work and then um, sometimes for the better sometimes for the worse uh, there, he's actually, this is all, he's, oh sorry go ahead <laughs> okay, no, go ahead go ahead uh, he's from Boston, right? Or he's from Massachusetts, yeah. at least? Okay. Yeah. So, so at least he probably could pull that off. I, I was, I'm having a really hard time imagining him as a romantic lead because right. I don't think of him doing that. I would think of him coming in and doing, like, monologues about, you know, like like a Demolition Man-style monologue about smoking and, you know, and then yeah. just, I can't imagine him being, like, a romantic lead. I've never heard of this movie either, by the way. This is insane. Yeah, like, and he's <laughs> he's one of those people that I'm like, I, I, I love Judgment Night, and I, I'm no no uh, stranger to that and put that out there on Twitter all the time. But, like, so I'm used to seeing him in that mode where he's just, like, he's monologuing and he's, like, going at it intense, you know, 100 miles an hour. Uh, and this, he really kind of, like, slows it all down and is just kind of, like, taking the backseat to Bullock and is kind of softens his hard edges. Um, and, he's you know, he's kind of playing, like, a lovable loser sort of character. And it's... Yeah, so, so it was really interesting. Uh, this is also really uh, one of the things I didn't expect going into this, but there's this hilarious deadpan performance by Yafet Koto as an FBI agent pursuing them. And mm -hmm. it's, a, it's just one of those things that you're like, whoa, like, what's he doing here? You were not expecting to see Yafet Koto show up, up in this like, rom-com, uh, but he's hilarious. And uh, yeah, so do if I see another one that... Um, kind of a forgotten movie that, that showed up on my radar. Okay, yeah. I see it's on Amazon Prime, too, so it's available out there, so... Yeah, yeah. It hasn't okay. completely disappeared. Yeah. <laughs> um, so so that... Um, another thing uh, I think we talked about briefly was uh, Samaritan, which is one that I think a lot of us were kind of looking forward to, those who are at least, uh, you know, Stallone fans. I had gone into it already hearing a little bit of mixed things about it, but I so I, I went into it with a very open mind 
I originally had heard Stolen was working on Samaritan like a few years back. I was just immediately sold because I was like, I love that he's taking a step in this direction as like doing something genre or doing something just different than just the Expendables or Creed and branching out and, and actually having some something like Amazon behind it. So that was a little bit hopeful. Uh, I remember you, you said that you felt like this would be at home in the superhero movies of the late 90s, and I could not agree more. Um, <laughs> it's weird. I, I feel like this had shades of steel and like spawn and even like a little bit of the mask in areas where it was like oh, the, way yeah, yeah. the way they're setting up this city in peril. Um, and I liked Stallone's character and even the kid's character. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you, yeah, you we, saw I, it as well. I saw it as well. I made that tweet about it that uh, got more attention than I expected. It wasn't like it got, went viral or anything, but I was I was surprised. But uh, I mean, it was also me complaining about how Amazon didn't market the movie at all. So right. Uh, right. I mean, we knew because we talked to people and were on Twitter, but like a lot of people did not know it was out. They, they knew it was even a thing that existed. I don't think they knew it was coming out the weekend it came out. And right. uh, yeah, I was I, I wrote this thing. I was I. I don't want to oversell that it's great. I don't think it's great. I think it's like solid, but I was getting no attention. It's a new Stallone movie that's in the superhero genre and it's available on prime. And some, it's funny you bring up steel because I was thinking of steel too. And someone even commented like something about like reminded them of steel. And I was like, I'm trying to sell people on the movie, but I agree (laughs) because listen, I have a soft spot for steel but it's not a good movie. I don't think. And... I agree. And I, one of our, our mutuals, um, Vice, he he puts up like these uh, sort of vision boards yes. of like movies yeah. after he sees them, and he put a still uh, still from Steel. And I said, I don't I don't know if that's going to help people, but I agree <laughs> with you 100%. Vice, it's it's got those like Steel vibes. It does, and I don't know it... what made me think it has Steel vibes because it's like I think just the the aspects of like it's very street level ground level neighborhood based superhero movie yeah. like it yeah. the plot literally does not i think extend beyond the city it's like the the, the bad guy just like wants to knock the power out and cause chaos that's yeah. it as far as i'm it's like and and steel is very like small in that way too that's i think what mostly what i was thinking and i think there's a whole thing with like uh steel and like the kids like i think it's his nephew or cousin that like a little kids involved with the bad guys. And there's, I yeah. think it's because the gang thing too. I think there's like gangs trying to recruit these kids. So there's definitely like shades of steel, but don't yeah, let the stakes that... are low. The stakes are definitely the stakes low. Are super low, which is kind of refreshing yeah. in modern superhero movies. Um, but I, I liked Samaritan. I, it, but it's very much my thing and very much your thing. It sounds like. So yeah, as, if, as two yeah. people who are staunch defenders of last action hero, uh, we're not, we're not, <laughs> you know, um, unfamiliar to having to you know, defend or, or enjoy a movie that a lot of other people don't like as much. <laughs> uh, that being yeah. said, I don't think this is on even Last Action Heroes level, uh, but, you know, I, I enjoyed it, and I felt like, for me, the the things that would have improved this were very clear to me. I think that they could have gone a little darker and grittier. I know this was a movie that was supposed to be a kid's movie or a movie that, you know, kids and grownups could enjoy. But if they had had uh, like a, a, a more serious like villain, there was even like areas where they felt like they were kind of like flirting with the idea of like, you know, the, the, the law enforcement or the city officials or people sort of like 
neglecting this population and, and the homelessness and all of that, where they could have maybe explored that um, had they had the, the range to go darker. And I, I think a rated R film would have allowed that. And even, you know, nowadays they could have even gone into something where you have like police corruption and things like that. That's a whole uh, rabbit hole that they probably didn't want to go down either. But again, I think Samaritan would have welcomed that. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, either way, I enjoyed it. And I, uh, for what it was, uh, didn't hit the marks the way I wanted to in every area. But I'm really, really happy to see Stallone just trying something like this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's 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 good because it's like it's definitely you know him i don't, I don't extracting the right word he's kind of doing like <laughs> like a like almost like his thing in in the creed movies when he's like the the beaten down legend who's still you know hanging around but in this he's like you know i don't want to help people anymore based i'm staying out of it and but i think he's pretty good i think the main kid is pretty good i think the kids on that show euphoria yeah. um which i don't yeah, watch but good. people were talking about that uh it's like um uh i'm trying to think uh, yeah I, th I think there was like they touch on like police just not helping but it's not really a thing there's like a lot of ideas i think they don't really expand on too much like yeah um but i mean you know it, it's basically like if you like this kind of thing like if you have a fondness for like late 90 mid mid to late 90s or even into the 2000s a little bit like daredevil or something <laughs> like like uh you might you might like samaritan because i feel like it's like uh kind of uh it could it could be like those movies it's so it, i think it's a small scale of it i think it's the there's just it's not very flashy you know it's like so right, right. um yeah i mean that's all like i i i think uh because somebody somebody said something like about you know like if you say everything's like a 90s movie maybe you didn't watch a lot of 90s movies or something like yeah. to that effect <laughs> on twitter and i don't think it was like directed toward me but it was right before i tweeted the samaritan thing <laughs> and i was i i was i wasn't trying to say it was exactly like those 90s movie, superhero movies but i felt like it was like a you know akin to them it's more it's way more like those movies and it's like any kind of like marvel movie like it's it's it just feels like it's right. out of time like it feels like it could have come out 20 years ago and have been more at home than it is now um or 25 years ago even um, and that could have been what was a little bit refreshing to me about it is it just didn't feel consequential to any big franchise it had a little bit of like lore at the beginning a little bit of um, exposition but it just wasn't like this big thing that we're used to getting where we have like okay this is going to be tied into this tv show or this upcoming film and you got the post-credit scene pay attention there's all of this stuff that's tied together in mainstream modern superhero films and none of that was there and so that was kind of just refreshing to have that regardless of if it was uh, a home run as far as a movie was that's true yeah yeah i think that's part of it too it's like oh this is just a single story that may or may not set up a sequel i don't think there's even post credit scene i don't know if there's uh i can't remember but um and yeah i was kind of like almost shocked at how i was like the bad guy's plan. I was just like, that's, that's the whole plan. Okay. I got, it's like, there's not yeah. like an extra layer here. There's not like <laughs> another secret big bad. Um, uh, yeah, it's, and the ending, I think the climax is pretty good. Uh, I won't say exactly what happens, but, yeah. um, the action kind of ramps up more than it has the whole movie. Um, and it's a lot of fun and yeah, I don't know. I, I had a good time with it. Um, I just feel like, I mean, at the time we're recording this, 
I think it just came out. Was it just last week or the weekend before? Yeah, it was uh, it was a like a week and a half ago. Yeah. Right. And it's like I feel like at that time people we were on Twitter like, hey, don't forget this new Stallone movie's out. And I feel <laughs> like it's already been forgotten. And by the time it comes, this comes out, which would be next week, uh, it'll be even more forgotten. So who knows? I'm just saying Samaritan exists, it's on Prime, it's free. Might but a lot of people don't like it. So again, with with, with like tempered expectation yeah if if you're a stallone fan you could do a lot worse than oh my god yeah yeah he's made a lot worse Um, movies than this so (laughs) So. take take that for what you will yeah Um, yeah those are (laughs) those are pretty much the the main things i've seen recently okay okay good so uh yes and i saw samaritans that leads and i jump into my stuff um okay so watched a big one that you reminded me of. I'm glad you reminded me before we started recording. Uh, I put on Twitter. People seem very excited. I finally sat down and watched Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves with Kevin Costner. And it was great. <laughs> I loved it. I was like, what have I been doing my whole life? Uh, avoiding this movie because it was a lot of fun. Um, it It's so refreshing to hear you say that, Matt, because it's like, I'm so used to people having seen this and you probably, uh, experienced this before as well somebody see a movie that you grew up with and have like all this nostalgia for and love for and they see it as adults and they're like wow that was that was some hot garbage uh (laughs) and and you're like no (laughs) um so so this was something that uh was cool to hear you say you know coming to it with fresh eyes obviously always the biggest criticism criticism that i'm used to hearing people say is uh the accent uh you know or the lack thereof from Costner right what yeah. was going on there um uh, but yeah it's it's one that I've, I've grown up loving so yeah you you came to it and um I, I thought that was great this is one of those movies that for me I've even spent time um you know talking about it before on podcasts but it's it's the one that I always identify as my uh Robin Hood you know there's been 18 different live action versions of, of Robin Hood on film you know, over the course of what, you know, a hundred years. And that is, that's not even including the Disney one that everybody always, you know, knows really well. For me, Costner's version has been my favorite because, you know, I'm not saying that it's the definitive one, but I just have this, you know, you have this personal connection to, you know, a character like this when there's all these different iterations of it. And it sort of transcended the Hollywood canon for me and, you know, what's considered the best portrayal. And just, I dig it. I'm, I'm a Costner guy also, so I'm a little bit biased. I understand. I, I think I've become more of a Costner guy over the past few years. I kind of felt like uh, he was a guy that was like my my parents' favorite actor type of guy, where I'm like, even as a kid, I was like, I don't get this guy. He seems kind of boring, but um, yeah. <laughs> I, I like it more the more stuff I see. I was really based off like nothing. And I, it's funny because Robin or Prince of Thieves is a movie I based off of my opinion off of basically nothing because I feel like I feel like it was either like on a lot or like my mom and dad were watching it. I was very little, like four or five, six, somewhere in that range. And um, I felt like I had this idea in my head that it was a like boring movie or very stuffy. And like, I don't know what I was getting that from because it's super fun. So I don't know what I was yeah. thinking that it was boring. <laughs> like um, I think yeah, as I kids and the, like in the eighties, there was sort of an idea that maybe it was like, yeah, like this is like a stuffy medieval sort of, a story that won't transcend to modern action. Uh, but in the late 80s, there was actually like three different versions of Robin Hood being made at the same time or being developed. This one um, that was with Morgan Creek 
And then there was a John McTiernan was working on one with 20th Century Century Fox. And then TriStar was also making one, uh, <laughs> but only a, one of them ever made it to the screen. And the funny thing is, um, Costner was actually circling the McTiernan version uh, when they were when they were making that. So it's like crazy to think like John McTiernan is making a Robin Hood movie. Uh, but then Morgan Creek hired Kevin Reynolds because they knew that uh, he and Costner were kind of in, you know, they were good friends at the time. And so they hired him to poach Costner over to Prince of Thieves and it worked. And he's like, Costner's like, yeah, I'm going with Kevin Reynolds. So <laughs> that's how it all came together. And it, it's, yeah, I still think it's, a lot of fun. Uh, there's a there's like a few different versions of it. I think uh, Arrow is just about to release like a 4K release of it, and yeah, it's yeah, it's great. Um, the Michael Kamen score, of course, is iconic. Oh my god, uh, the score! Yes, oh, we got to. So I tried to cut you off, but the score. Yeah. I was losing my mind during the opening credits because, like, why have I heard this song so many times? And I had to Google it, and apparently, it was like Disney had used it as like the uh like i don't know intro theme or something for like commercials on their yeah their vhs or dvds for other movies or like i can't i'm not explaining it very well but like disney had took took it for something and used it continuously for years uh, i think that was on home re home video releases and i was like because i was sitting there listening to the song and i'm like why do i know the song so well yeah and, well and if you if you watch any other like morgan creek movie that came out after this morgan creek immediately made this the theme song to their studio fanfare oh that's right that's what it was too so, yeah that, so was, that was like you know <laughs> cemented into our brains as like 90s kids yeah um, but then, yeah and then of course the the brian adams song is like a very very like oh yeah you know tied into this movie <laughs> which is which is always really cool to me because basically what happened is uh michael Kamen did the score created this like sonic bed of, of uh, music for uh, Brian Adams, and then Brian Adams came in and built the song around it. So it was very much like uh, tied into what Cayman was already doing as far as the song. But yeah, big fan of Yeah, the score is great. Uh, Kevin Reynolds' direction is pretty fun. He does some kind of like some crazy stuff in there. I feel yeah. like there, he's <laughs> uh, some crazy shots. Um, we can't uh, ignore the the Alan Rickman like maybe oh my one God. of his like all time roles. <laughs> Rickman just just going for it, just eat, just yeah. chewing that scenery up. Yeah. Like, uh, I love it. He's really just yeah. going all out. Um, and and I always tell people if if they're excited about what, um, no, Michael Wincott. Oh my god, uh, yeah, I, I, I was so yeah. happy to see Wincott show up. I was like, I love yeah. Michael Wincott. So, yeah. I'm I'm always telling people if you know they are excited about what Michael Wincott did in Nope, go back and revisit Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves because. That was like one of the first roles where I was like really excited about him as an actor. I, yeah, and I mean, I love him from The Crow is like my, I think, first and biggest exposure to him. And I yeah. feel like it's one of my favorite bad guy performances because he's just uh, Michael Wincott's great. I'm so glad he was a nope, too, because it's just like a reminder to people like, yeah, this guy's a great actor and still is. like yeah. Um, yeah, his voice great. is fantastic. Um, uh, the, and Kevin Costner's accent really did not bother me. I'm surprised people made that big a deal out of it. Because like you, it's it's more the absence of an accent. It's really yeah. not even like like Keanu Reeves in Dracula, which is a fantastic movie, and I'm kind of over. I don't really care anymore. I thought it was very funny when I was younger. Like yes, his accent is pretty bad, but it's like it's like that movie's so good and it all overcomes it. But that's like that is someone doing a bad accent. The, Kevin Costner, Robin Hood is like someone 
first of all, I think barely even trying to do an accent and then just forgetting to do one. So it's like, it's not a big deal because it's not like, um, it doesn't Brad Pitt do like a terrible Irish accent in Devil's Own or something. Oh, yes. Like, yeah. The Devil's you... Own. I mean, there's, there's <laughs> I, been far yeah. worse examples where it's like, I mean, I, I would even say like, like I brought up to it by C, like the accent stuff that Sandra Bullock's doing in that is probably more distracting than <laughs> Kevin Costner in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. So, yeah. I just didn't I think just, it was distracting at all because it wasn't even like anything. It was like a weird, like sometimes I think he would just drop it mid mid scene. <laughs> it's like, yeah. uh, you know, and that's fine. It's such a light accent to begin with. And then he just doesn't even do it. I'm like, eh. and the movie's so good. Otherwise I could care less. Like, I think it's such a silly thing. People get hung up on like that. His accent is not even really a thing. Like, I don't know. It just, yeah, the movie's well, that, so good otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was, yeah. A, a small little victory that I was excited about when, when you came out and you're like, yeah, Robin Hood Prince of Thieves is actually good. Saw it with fresh eyes. So. <laughs> yeah. I was a little, like I'd avoided it for years. I got this weird idea in my head that it was like boring. I don't know where I got that from. And it's like this super fun action adventure movie. And I'm like, what the hell was I on about? Um, I actually might buy that Arrow release now, too, because uh, and, and I watched the, I guess, shorter cut, I think the theatrical, which I think mm -hmm. people advise me is better, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I've watched both versions. I have the extended cut. I think the, the main difference in the extended cut is they delve more into the backstory on uh, the sheriff of Nottingham and his relationship to the witch, which, um, Mortiana, who in the extended cut they actually reveal is his mom. And they go into all this other weird stuff with that storyline. Um, so, yeah, the theatrical cut is is perfectly fine with that. <laughs> yeah, I think I don't, I don't know if I need that kind of stuff. I think I can just yeah. leave that out. <laughs> it's already like a two hour and 20 minute movie. I'm like, I don't yeah. need to make it any longer. Like yeah. it, it moved pretty well for that long, but I, I don't need to add stuff at that point. And <laughs> so, um, OK. Uh, and the last thing I'll mention, uh, which can lead us right to sudden death, because I was looking at Peter Hyams filmography and I was like, what's a big Peter Hyams movie I haven't seen. And I had never seen outland uh, oh, until awesome. literally today I watched outland. Um, outland is pretty awesome. Outland is, is yeah. uh, a movie that again, I don't know if it's talked about quite enough. I mean, I know of it and I've seen the poster and, but, but it's like, it's pretty awesome. It's uh like yeah so i've the poster is very cool sean connor the shotgun and yeah it's like but outland is is it's amazing how they took like all the aesthetic of alien from two years earlier right. and made a movie that's uh really almost like someone someone pointed out that being in space is well there's a few things it's almost inconsequential there's a few things where it's very important but but there's no aliens there's no I don't know. There's, it's not. It's sci-fi, but that blue, very blue-collar sci-fi that Aliens is like. And you could imagine Outland and Alien existing in the same universe, being part of like the same companies or something. You know, um, yeah. it's kind of crazy. I was like, wow, this is so alien. It's bananas. But um, so basically, yeah. Uh, Sean Connery is this federal marshal who gets stationed at this mining colony on a moon of Jupiter. Um, he uncovers like a drug smuggling conspiracy, basically. Um, that's kind of all being led by Peter Boyle, who kind of runs the the mining colony and Connery. A lot of guys have like looked the other way and have just let him this, uh, Peter Boyle do this whole thing. Um, but Sean Connery uh, kind of wants to put a stop to it, but nobody wants to help him. Um, 
And it basically comes like a riff on High Noon in space. It's yeah. like it's really like yeah. this like Western it's, thing. It's, it's just this building tension of this this thriller that just like you said, it just happens to be on another planet, but they're building it really well. A lot of suspense. The setting and the like the iconography, like we're saying with the alien, is every time I talk about this online, I'll have people say, like, I am convinced that this is in the same universe as Alien because it just it just feels right. And yeah. uh, so I love uh, Peter Boyle in this one, which is like, this is sort of like an underappreciated Peter Boyle performance. He just killing it as the villain. And then uh, Connery is, yeah, I, I love seeing him in this. I, I had not seen this until probably four or five years ago. And I just, this was one of those discoveries where I was like, how come I've never heard of this before? Like Outland, like, because it wasn't as big as, you know, some of the other films from his genre it didn't like pop the way um, Alien did or, or, you know, those, those kinds of movies. So yeah, I'm really glad you brought this up because um, I, I'll, I'll talk a little about it a little bit um, further as we get into to Hyams, but he's, you know, not a filmmaker that you think you see a movie and you're like, oh, that's a Peter Hyams movie. You have to know that it's a Peter Hyams movie already. Like, like the general population are not always like oh yeah it's not like he's got his brand but once you know his movies you're like you can identify it yeah that makes sense that's that's times yeah it's, he's very much a journeyman or that guy director as uh, as patrick bromley would call them we did a whole episode on yeah. journeyman directors i feel like this peter hyams could have i think he was one of the other options i think but he didn't when, make the final cut but yeah. um definitely that's a P peter hyams has done so many different movies and like um it's always very like good and like a very steady director. He his style is not very distinct. It's kind of like um, even though he works his own uh, cinematographer or DP quite a bit. Like uh, um, he doesn't sudden death, I know for sure. But like so, the movies kind of have a little bit of a similar look. But it's like he's it's yeah he's kind of just goes from project to project and um, he's a very solid director. And yeah, Outland is really good. I guess it doesn't have like. Yeah, it's something, it does not pop. Like, people don't talk about it like other things, but I think it's a super solid, like, uh, it's all, it's action, sci-fi, Western thriller thing. And, like, yeah, they do a ticking clock thing at one point because he's basically uh, waiting on guys to come kill him at a certain point. And uh, yeah. Connery's great. I thought it was a really good Sean Connery performance. I mean, um, I'm always, it's funny because I, I, like everyone else, I so associate him and think of him as James Bond. But... So like any performance I see of him where he's not James Bond, I feel like it's always interesting. I don't know how to, it's, it kind of yeah. sounds silly, but like I just I mean he's in lots of movies by James Bond, but like it's just funny to see him do these other things when I'm so associating him with one character. But um, yeah, he's really good in Outland. It almost someone pointed out too. It almost feels weird to have Sean Connery in like a sci-fi type movie, but I feel like he he fits in well. <laughs> so. Um, and yeah, you wonder if you wonder if sci-fi hadn't kind of picked up in terms of like this kind of movie, if it hadn't, you know, if why he didn't do more earlier in his career, or if it was just like, you know, Bond is his bread and butter, and it just took him a while to get to a movie like Outland. But yeah, he he fits so well into it. So yeah, yeah. I mean, he does he does take a chance. I think when he's in Highlander, which is more like fantasy than sci-fi, but. Um... Like he'll do some weird stuff, but yeah, he uh, 
he, I don't know. He's, he's, he was so interesting at other, these other roles he took. So, um, yeah. but yeah, Avalanche's really good. I, again, kind of heard bad things about it for a long time. Not bad things, but mostly like people being like, eh, it's okay. And I'm like, no, it's pretty good, I think. So, yeah. um, again, another Peter, another good Peter Hyams movie. So, speaking of good Peter Hyams movies, uh, <laughs> I think we can jump into, uh, Sudden Death now with, Hyams and Van Dam reteaming after Time Cop from just a couple years earlier. Um, so I guess I don't know where to start this conversation, but uh, with this, um, I'll just ask you right at the gate: Do you have a favorite Van Dam movie? Oh yeah, I'll, I'll say without a doubt, it's it's Sudden Death. I mean, oh, okay, okay. I <laughs> yeah. I, I kind of came to this one because um, I remember listening to your top five Van Dam episode with, with Mike Scott, mm-hmm. and you know just being floored when I, I saw Sudden Death's placement on your list at number one, I was like, that was it for me. Um, <laughs> for a while, I thought this was really underappreciated because I wouldn't hear about it in just sort of general, like real life conversations with other people about like the canon of great action movies. But then in the last few years, especially online, there's been like the surge for it. And I hear about all these people, like whenever I'll post something about Sudden Death, everyone's like, oh yeah, it's one of my favorite Van Damme movies. Or it's like, that's my favorite. And, and so it's, it's definitely in the conversation there. It's, and I, I'd hate to, I hate to uh, maybe break your heart here, but upon rewatch, I think I have to adjust my ranking slightly. <laughs> and <Yeah. laughs> so I, ha, I, ha, I think hard target has jumped my number one Van Damme and sun death is now number two, um, I, which is, listen, I'm not heartbroken because <laughs> I mean, for me, for, for a long time, it's always been like Hard Target and Sudden Death are neck and neck. Um, and then I'll just, I guess I'll round out my top five for you. Then then under those two, it's usually, um, uh, I'll have Time Cop and then um, Double Team. And I really like Universal Soldier as well. Um, but yeah, so those are, those are sort of how my top five rounds out. But it's always Sudden Death and Hard Target at the top. So I'm not not hard okay (laughs) it's a tough it's a tough choice but they're both great so um i think it's also even more hard target just like has gotten better for me over the years not like sudden death has really gotten worse necessarily um uh and i think i've just watched sudden death so many times that like i don't want to say it's it's getting old for me but it's just i don't know it's kind of like i don't know how much more i can get out of sudden death i i feel like i watched Sudden death so much on tv back in the day i swear i think it was the usa network played sudden death like every weekend because i felt like i watched it on cable constantly and i think it was them and like it was like their movie it was like let's play sudden death again guys and like i would watch it all the time i think there was a time where i had seen this more than like die hard which is a uh, you know a big die hard uh ripoff or clone would be a nicer way to say it um yeah like, but yeah, I think I'd seen it more at a certain point. And uh, yeah, and I think it's funny that, that that's how we kind of come to it because it's like we're we maybe didn't see Die Hard before all these other movies, or maybe we watched around the same time. But for people who saw Die Hard first, it's always like the one that, you know, obviously has the influence on them. Uh, but I felt like the same way where it's like sudden death was a, a staple um, on TV growing up. Yeah, it was just, I feel like it was always on and I'd always catch a little bit of it because I just, yeah, I just thought it was, I think the, for me, it was like the setting was so cool that we're not only at a hockey game, but like game seven of the 
Stanley Cup. You know, it's like yeah. it couldn't be the stakes could be bigger. Um, and not even a, I'm not even really much of a hockey fan. Like I like hockey and I've gone to see it in person. And it's fun, but like, um, I just think the setting's so cool. I, that's what I was gonna ask you. Are you are you a hockey fan in real life or just? Uh, I'm a, I'm actually not even a huge hockey fan. Like I'm I enjoy the sport, but it's usually like I'm on the periphery of it because like my brother in law is a hardcore hockey fan and he's he's all in on the the LA Kings. I remember um, you know going to LA Kings games growing up and and things like that. So this was definitely in my um, in my awareness, but I wasn't like you know, following the sport every season and keeping up with everything. Um, you know, for me, sudden death kind of came about because when we were talking about, you know, me coming on the show, I was thinking about the kinds of movies that I wanted to talk about or that I'd have a lot to talk about. And uh, the thing that just popped up in my head, because I was like, I knew that you were a fan of Last Action Hero. Um, as, I've, as I've already mentioned, you know, we're both big fans of, I think of this within that umbrella of what I call the planet Hollywood era. Uh, and so for me growing up, there was always like an action movie elite, like a Rushmore when it came to who I thought of when the genre was brought up as far as like American action movies. For me, it was personally Schwarzenegger, Stallone, Willis, and Van Damme. And I'm not shy about you know being a fan of this like planet Hollywood era that I'd classify as being like 1990 to 1997 when they were all kind of you know carrying their careers from the 80s over into the 90s and sort of redefining themselves and mm -hmm. the way i always classify this time period is like they had this last name only club and i i think i tweeted about this a while back where you had these movies that it had one guy and it had the last name on it and it was Schwarzenegger. it was alone and it was van Dam, and you'd see these posters where is that that was all it was and today uh, every movie has like a cast of floating heads and half of hollywood on the poster but in the 90s it was like one face one name and i don't know why why that changed i mean it, it doesn't feel like the movie stars are any less famous but that was kind of what i was thinking of when i was thinking about the the movie that would be really fun to talk about um, John Claude Van Damme always felt like a bit of an underdog when compared to Stallone and yeah, Schwarzenegger yeah. and Willis. <laughs> I don't know if it was because he came through the canon films the way he did, or you know, I, I'd heard about him kind of struggling in the early 80s um, to kind of get his footing, and he would take all these different other roles. Um, and he didn't have like a smash entrance like they did, even though you know you had Bloodsport and, and Kickboxer. So when he finally got going in the 90s. I have a sort of soft spot for seeing him, you know, get up to their level and get and get to that point. Um, yeah, yeah. He uh, he did always feel like it felt like Willis and Stallone and Schwarzenegger were always in like the the A tier, and it felt like Van Damme and Seagal were like the head of like the B tier. And I hate to like, I I you know I'm not not like I think that, but I'm just, I felt that's how the public perception was. Like they were right. Like that you guys can't be on the same level as these, these guys. Um, yeah. And it might've yeah, been I mean, the playing Hollywood thing. And it might've been, they were just in bigger movies, obviously. <laughs> but um, then I, I love the early Seagal stuff. I love a lot of Van Damme stuff, but yeah, I felt like it never, they wanted to be in the A group and they could, they could never quite breach it is what it felt like. Yeah. Yeah. I actually, 
Um, can I go on a side tangent since we're talking about the Planet Hollywood thing? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I was just thinking about, you know, how I always associate Planet Hollywood with this era because of this visceral memory that I have. And I was, when, when he asked me to be on the show, I was like, okay, I got to I gotta bring this up to Matt. Uh, I went to Planet Hollywood in the summer of 93. And it was possibly maybe my second or third time going. First, I had the, you know, the Captain Crunch fried chicken. And I can't tell you if it was good or bad at this point, but I was definitely like drinking the Kool-Aid back then. Uh, but so for a 10 year old movie buff, this was paradise. You know, we were eating under a surfboard from Point Break and next to a tuxedo from Father of the Bride. I was like, I'm in heaven. So uh, we're, we're done with our meal and there's this big commotion at the entrance. So I asked my parents, can I go out and see what's going on? So I sort of walk up towards the entrance. There's this crowd forming at the entrance we didn't really know what it was, so we asked, like, what's going on? And they tell us, oh, it's a, it's a last action hero promotional event. And Arnold Schwarzenegger is coming to the restaurant with the oh, other God. cast members <laughs> to promote the upcoming release. I think it was like a week or two away. And so at the time, I'm 10 years old. I've probably only seen, like, Kindergarten Cop, Twins, and maybe a, snack, a, a viewing of, of T2 at a friend's house or something. But I was all I knew is that this was like an Arnold movie that was aimed at kids, so I was completely in. Um, so they had this red carpet, you know, outside the restaurant that that wasn't there when we got there. And there's all these lights and people are taking pictures, and we're edging our way up to the the barricades. I'm peeking over, and sure enough, like Arnold shows up in the car from the movie with Marie Schreiber. He's got the big, you know, le- uh, last action hero Leatherman jacket. Austin O'Brien shows up. Uh, I think uh, I think Anthony Quinn comes, and it, I seem to remember like a few other actors as well. But it was just like I was just like stunned because I was like, "This is like you know when you see a, an actor, it's like the first time you can remember being sort of starstruck," and that was it. And so like whenever I talk about this time period, that's like a memory that's always like imprinted on me as like last action hero Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'm stunned right now hearing this story. I, I, I would have passed away as a six-year-old if I had been there and Arnold showed up. I think I would have just, my body would have left the earth, I think, if that had happened. Like, um, that's amazing. I, I was surprised yeah. you even asked permission to tell that story. It's like a slash and hero. Just t- it's, it's like, it's, yeah. Um, well, you, I know, I know we're it. talking uh, about yeah. Van Damme, but this is like very, like, in my mind, all these memories and then, like, sudden death, time cop. This is all very, like, adjacent. Like, I blanketed over this like period of time for action movies yeah, yeah. and and van damme does have a brief cameo in last action hero right at the right. premiere uh and i feel like van damme kind of got the, not the last laugh but he he's in expendables 2 that all these guys are also in and i feel like he outshines everybody in expendables 2 i think he's yeah, the best part I, of that movie i i kind of wish he had gotten a chance or maybe it may have not even better than that he may have not been open to playing a villain earlier in his career because he was very mm. like he talks about it in interviews and you can always feel like he was kind of like Stallone in that he was very intentional in his choices and, and why he was choosing to, choosing to do this movie or that movie and when I hear him talk about it it's always like yeah this was the next step for me the next step in my career and um yeah so I mean sudden death um you know we, we were talking about Die Hard influences while I think that's fair I feel like this movie has so much other interesting things working for it that transcend the the diehard formula. And we look back on these, these movies and they always get 
given the derogatory sort of diehard die knockoff or diehard clone uh, labels, but they're all good. Like Speed, Cliffhanger, Sudden Death, Under Siege. These are these are like the great action movies of the 90s. Yeah, and I I love a diehard riff of any kind. All those yeah. movies I'm a huge fan of, so I, I couldn't get enough. I was like, give me more takes on Die Hard. You're such a good Die Hard in a hockey arena, Die Hard yeah. on a bus, Die Hard the... on a Navy ship. Like it's so it's so fluid. I feel like and it's like, yes, the premise is obviously the same kind of and they're all looking for Die Hard ripoffs, but they don't feel like I could watch them all back to back and I don't think I feel like I'm watching the same movie, honestly. So right. right. I mean it's a hero having to work by themselves and you know work against a bomber or like a group of terrorists. But it's still there's just these different things and with sudden death um the thing about it that was different was you had thousands of hostages that don't know that they're hostages and then the plot of this is also running parallel to like a sports movie that's happening within it and it's right. so it's like this white knuckle adventure hiding within plain sight of like an adjacent or like parallel sports movie um and i don't know like for me I mean, the thing that imprinted on me about Sudden Death was it was the first R-rated movie I ever got to see in a theater. And I'm sure you can just jump to the memory that you have as well when it comes to that. And so it felt like I was automatically like stepped up my, you know, my movie going experience to a whole new level and you're getting away with something. And it was Van Damme. So I was like already I had seen, you know, a bunch of his other movies. And I was like, yes, this is awesome. <laughs> yeah i and like i said i only see it on tv so i think when i first saw this uh like uncut i was surprised how violent sun death is i kind of thought it was like a uh like a p13 or like a really soft r but then oh, like yeah. oh no there's some really violent stuff like he stabs the guy in the neck with like a turkey yeah. leg or a turkey bone or something it's, it's like, very mean-spirited <laughs> yeah yeah the the friggin i mean i'm gonna jump all around but the uh one of the, the one female terrorist i think she's the only female terrorist like basically told tells van damme's daughter like she would have killed her but she just ran out of bullets it's the only reason that she didn't kill a little girl was that yeah. she ran out of bullets it's in, i was like holy shit like this is dark like yeah. this cute little girl was almost murdered but the girl's like eh, rip they're lucky day i ran a bullet so i was like oh my yeah. god um yeah it is and like the, all the stuff that um powers booth is doing um in that uh vip uh booth is like uh he's super mean like he's just like killing people willy-nilly <laughs> like, yeah, yeah i mean he's right. like you, yeah. you think about like hans gruber and what's happening in Die Hard, and he doesn't like when you watch this you feel like powers booth is taking people down like way more like casually than than alan rickman did in die hard <laughs> yeah it was like wow alan rickman was really like uh measured in who he was killing in die hard and powers booth is just like eh, it's like you, you looked at me the wrong way to shoot you yeah. like <laughs> yeah it was like uh the mayor's wife is annoying us right yeah we're gonna kill her <laughs> insanely mean-spirited i almost forgot like because it never, it never felt that way i think with the tv edit like the violence is out and i just think it didn't feel as mean-spirited and then when you watch it uncut, you're like, oh, yeah, this is kind of messed up. And speaking of being mean-spirited, they released it right before Christmas time. Yeah. I cannot fathom this idea. I mean, counter-programming, I guess, was the thought. But, like, because oh. <laughs> the, the opening day for Sudden Death is bonkers. So Sudden Death opened against Balto, Cutthroat Island, Dracula Dead and Loving It, Grumpy Old Men, Tom and Huck, and Waiting to Exhale. 
Jesus. And you're like, <laughs> like this is first of all, it's all over the place. But I just like, I don't feel like we have opening days like that anymore, where there's literally something for everybody. That, like, that is truly a day of something for everybody. <laughs> like, yeah. So I mean, wow. yeah, I was just like, I do remember seeing Cutthroat Island, and a, and a sudden death. I definitely saw, if not opening weekend, very shortly after. And we had talked to one of my friends' moms into taking taking us to her. And and we may have, con- we may or may not have convinced her because it was kind of a sports movie. <laughs> right. But I'm sure <laughs> she was very very, you know thrown off after the fact that like yeah not completely a sports for you guys <laughs> yeah not not quite although the the game is very tied into powers boots plan yeah. so i mean he's killing people at the end of each uh period um at the end we're, we like we're not near the end we're like we need to go to sudden death so and blow up the stadium <laughs> you know it's like yeah. uh you know we it, we we're rooting for them to get to sudden death it's like it all kind of ties in um uh, oh, sorry, I'm still stuck on the, the movies you mentioned that came out the same day as Sun Death. Why also Dracula Dead and Loving It three days before Christmas? Right, yeah. It, it seems like they were <laughs> dropping stuff all over the place, like very randomly, because normally, back then even, movie theaters sometimes were closed on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. So it was like coming out like right before it. But sometimes the movie theaters would either have like less screenings or they wouldn't even be open. Right. Yeah, I mean, so, now I feel like they're always open. But yeah, I guess then yeah. that, that was like, that's newer, I guess. they. Uh, it's just so weird to me. And like, because the movie kind of underperformed. Uh, and I'm like, right. I look at the release date. I'm like, well, that's definitely part of the reason. Like, this seems, this feels like a summer movie um, through and through to me. So I'm just so shocked yeah. they dropped it three days before Christmas with against I, eight <laughs> other movies. You know, it's like. It right, no... and I think it was, everybody kind of felt that way too, because it's. You know, I was watching a, an interview with Conan O'Brien where he was interviewing Jean-Claude Van Damme for this movie. And even he was like, oh, of course, like nothing says Christmas like hostages taking over a sporting event. And <laughs> so yeah, he, he was, it was not lost on him. The, you know, the, the sort of irony of this being dropped. Yeah, that's I mean, sorry, I couldn't get over that. Uh, yeah. So it's it's a shame that it didn't do as well as I think. Uh, you know, they they thought it would because I do I re, I still think it's obviously like we just one of a damn's best movies. And I think it's very yeah. besides being we just said it's a little mean spirited and kind of violent. I I still think it's like pretty accessible. He's clearly trying to do more of a an everyman thing here too. Yeah, like, yeah. I I mean, I, it's interesting to like put context on this in in Van Damme's career because I mean I had always heard about this sort of rags to riches story of him coming up into the 80s and then going through the canon films, Bloodsport, Cyborg, Kickboxer. But I didn't I didn't actually discover those films or come to his filmography until probably around like 1990 or something. Because the first movie I remember really, you know, being aware of and being like, oh yeah, I, I want to see that was Double Impact. And I think that was like 1990, which I love the scrappy sort of production values of and the premise of it's like, a parent trap but it's you know martial arts and two, he's he's playing two different characters and he has like the most superficial ways to like define each character but but i loved it and then you know a lot of people that you know i i was friends with or that you know we've seen movies together we identified his rise there in the 90s as you know, universal soldier nowhere to run hard target time cop street fighter sudden death 
And it always, like when I look back on it and I contextualize it, I always think everything's leading up to sudden death because that was sort of, I don't know, it was, it was framed as this is going to be like my big movie because you know, Time Cop was, I think, maybe his biggest hit at that point. It had like 100 million uh, box office on like a 20 million or like 20 something million budget. Um, even though like Street Fighter was also pretty panned, it was still a profit. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, when you, go, when you go back and listen to interviews with, with Jean-Claude Van Damme, he always talks about sudden death like it's like it's his big break, even though he's had modest success already under his belt. And in a few of these uh, interviews, he would call sudden death an A picture. He's like, he's like, this is my A picture. He says, you know, he's pumped to, you know, to get his big blockbuster where, you know, it's his diehard. And I, and I remember at the time thinking like, oh, that's cool. Like Jean-Claude's finally going to get like his version of this action movie trope. And he's doing something a little bit different. Um, and, in, in, you know, next to Street Fighter, I think I think uh, Sudden Death had the biggest budget to that point. It was like $35 million. And then, you know, after Sudden Death didn't perform as well, it's like felt like his career was kind of leveling off. Yeah, it did kind of feel like this was like his big shot. I mean, it definitely does feel like his A-pitcher because, like... Street Fighter is based off a video game, which I mean now would be a bigger deal. But I feel like at the time they were like, "You're making a movie based off this fighting game for kids," you know. And uh, yeah. I, it did well. And then Time Cop is a big hit, but I feel like it's a little too like heady sci-fi for some people, probably. So it's like not quite mainstream. But like, and and he's like, this is very like, you know, straightforward, easy to follow. He's very much like, I'm just a normal guy. And I like how they, they make him, I think they make him French Canadian to explain the accent. Yeah. Yeah. I do. Was, I do uh, love the, always the bending to explain Van Damme or Schwarzenegger's accents. It's like, he's French Canadian. That's it. <laughs> like, you yeah. Know, this <laughs> one did feel like maybe the most organic and natural explanation yeah. of it. I mean, a lot of Arnold's movies just do not even acknowledge it. They're just like, oh, this is a massive guy who has like this Austrian accent. We're not going to talk about it. This is not a man you just run into at the grocery store. Like this man just yes. like so, but yeah, Van Damme. I yeah, they were kind of trying a little bit, and he really is like leaning hard to like you know I'm just a dad. I feel like it's just I'm a yeah. dad. I love. I think it's oh, it's quite the opening scene uh, where Van Damme goes to his ex wife's house to get the kids. Um, right. I wrote this down specifically. Like it's the old trope of like like they're divorced. He wants to get the kids, and she's like, no, it's not your time to have them. And then like her her uh new guy is there i don't know if he's i think his name's michael i wrote this down uh this guy is just dropping exposition for us i thought it was so funny he's trying to be so nice to van damme though where he's just like i wrote the line he was like oh those look they might be penguin tickets and he's like the vice president's gonna be there you know it's like then (laughs) he says your dad's a fire inspector at the game and he's like it's only temporary though he has all this information (laughs) he told us all this stuff like how how do you do you know this much about your your wife's ex and you're just like I'll need it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like he knows so much about everything about Van Damme's life. And it's like, he's just uh, his uh, Van Damme's ex-wife's new guy. And he's like, I mean, good for him. He backs him up. But he, <laughs> it's like, oh, I just thought it was so funny that it's like, it's like, boom, boom, boom. He gives us all the information we really need. Like, those are tickets. The vice president will be there. Um, you know, oh, your dad's a fire marshal. It'll only be a temporary, blah, blah, blah. And the one thing I thought, too, about sudden death, and I don't know the... the but I felt like they are really hard on the job of fire inspector because it actually seems like kind of a cool job, honestly. Yeah, like, they were, the, the kids were like, oh, you know, 
dad's not a firefighter anymore. Like they, right. they just kept like <laughs> hounding it, especially the son. And I realized oh, that this was, yeah. you know, you know, first of all, you know, the opening scene we start out with him kind of becoming a disgraced firefighter because he's not able to save this young girl in this house. Or it's really more like him obviously being hard on himself at that point and he's removed from the job. And and I feel like this is kind of stereotypical because it's a little similar to what happens with Stallone's character in Cliffhanger when he's oh, yeah. not able to save yeah. uh, Michael Rooker's girlfriend. Um, so, you know, they're setting him up for some kind of redemption arc because the hero wasn't able to save someone and now he has to find a way to, you know, come back from that and maybe prove to himself that he can be a hero. Uh, but, you know, yeah, I, I, I thought it worked. And I like you're, like you're saying, I feel like they're kind of selling the the job of like a fire marshal or fire inspector. Yeah, they're really uh, bashing it. I don't really understand. It's like you get to, you got you got your kids' tickets to a game seven Stanley Cup. That's already a cool job. You know what I mean? It's like yeah, uh yeah. that perk alone, I'd be like, that's a pretty cool job, Dad. <laughs> like if you're yeah. like they're so, bashing that it's so weird. I just thought it was so strange. <laughs> like, yeah. I, and and the way they set up his character, I I was actually um a fan of this and I enjoyed that they gave Jean Claude Van Damme a little bit something different. And I think they had set this up before in Nowhere to Run, where he had played a character that didn't rely so much on the martial as- martial arts aspect yeah. to, to like push his character forward. Like he was acting. He was playing a character that had some emotional art and had a little bit of a journey to go on. So in sudden death, it didn't feel like that much of a stretch. Yeah, and I think he's good with that kind of emotional stuff uh, in this. Like he gave him a little more like, I, he wants to act more. I think you could tell. They do dial down like, some of his fight stuff, which I guess would make more sense too, because he's supposed to be just like, I'm a normal firefighter, you know, but he's like, then he's like kicking, he still kicks a lot of people's asses, but it's like, it's a little toned down from past stuff. And, uh, um, yeah, the yeah, stuff they're... when like his daughter's in trouble, like she gets taken. I feel like he's good in those scenes. He's like, does seem like a genuinely concerned father who's like, you know, I'm gonna fuck you guys up basically. He <laughs> touched my yeah. daughter. And like, so I think he plays it all pretty well, really. Yeah. And, um, you know, we, we can't get past this point because like, and at this point you have these, you know, he's picking up his kids. This film is very intentionally set in Pittsburgh and there's, right. there's a lot of backstory we can get into, but like, I appreciate films that are set in specific cities where you can tell there was thought and intention put into it because it's not a generic location. There are a thousand movies, especially action movies set in New York city or LA. But when you think of Pittsburgh, it's like very, specific so for me the first few films that always come to mind are obviously like striking distance and flash dance and wonder boys but this is the movie that like when i think of pittsburgh and you know, I, was, I was talking to our mutual uh brandon streisnick on twitter about this sudden death is like the definitive uh pittsburgh movie for me yeah i mean it's very pittsburgh i know Brand- brandon's from the pittsburgh area right or from pittsburgh yeah. proper but uh yeah. Yes, it. I mean, yeah. it definitely feels like they shot it there. It's not like they shot some stuff. They might have shot a little, a couple of things in L.A., but yeah, I mean, it feels like it is very much a Pittsburgh movie. So yeah, yeah. When he when when I when I tweeted about um, you know prepping for this podcast, I loved it. He said everyone in Pittsburgh knows at least one Yinzer who's rightfully never shut about shut up about being an extra in sudden death. <laughs> and, I, and I thought that was hilarious because like I've even like seen other people comment about sudden death stuff where they're like. Oh yeah, I was an extra in that, or you know, I spent like you know a night sitting in the arena while they were shooting stuff for that. 
And it's, it's awesome. I mean, I just love when something like this is so specific and um, you know, the, the movie for this, you know, the, they did this after a couple years after the Pittsburgh Penguins had two years of winning the Stanley cup in a row in 91 and 92. So they were on a Stanley cup high already. And so they, mm-hmm. they had the old civic arena front and center uh, all these dramatic aerial shots of the, the city. This was all like done at the perfect time to make, you know, a Pittsburgh movie like this. Yeah. And it's during an NHL lockout, right? Right. Right. Yeah. I don't know um, how much into the background of it you got, but like basically, um, you know, the, the origin of sudden death and how, how this came about was uh, the owners or like part owners of the Pittsburgh Penguins, Karen and Howard Baldwin, uh, Karen was a writer, like a screenwriter, and Howard was a, a producer. And so one day I read that I, I read that Karen Baldwin comes up with this idea and says, like, hey, we should do a like a diehard action movie set in the arena, because this is this is a perfect setting for an action movie. And so the kind of wheels go into motion and they're contacting people in Hollywood and somehow it gets around to Hyams. Um, and I think a few other people had been approached, but it lands in Hyam's lap and he loves the premise for it, but he says, this is impossible. There's no way this is ever going to happen with all the red tape that you have to get through to use a team and an arena. And, you know, normally like sports movies, they're always like super generic, don't have the actual team name. Yeah. Or like I, that. yeah. <laughs> and, and then when it, when it comes out that, you know, oh no, these are the owners that, that want to do this. All of a sudden, all those roadblocks disappear. And, you know, part of what makes the film setting and premise work so much is the iconography. It's like, this is the Penguins team. This is their Pacific arena. It doesn't feel generic. I don't think this movie would have been half as cool if it was like a generic team and a generic location. Um, So to create this whole thing, the story coming from the owners themselves and it eliminating all these restrictions, you can totally tell why this, why this came together together so organically. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That is, it's a very cool and very unique backstory because that is not usually how these things happen, but uh, yeah, I do love they get to use the actual arena. Uh, I love that it's real teams. I, it drives me nuts when like it's a sports movie and they have to make up teams. Uh, Not like it's, if like it doesn't take place in our universe, that's fine. Like, um, like I know when dark Knight rises, they use fake teams like the Gotham is it the Gotham yeah. Knights or something? Yeah, and, and it's uh, and that's also shot in Pittsburgh. Yeah, and that's yeah. a Pittsburgh Steelers totally. playing that team. Um, yeah. but they make. I mean, that's okay because that's Gotham's not real. But but it's like I hate when it's supposed to take place in the real world and it's like they make up generic sports teams and it's like the Washington uh, Spartans versus the L.A. Uh, uh, I don't know uh, Grasshoppers or something. And it's like right. <laughs> it's like it's like these aren't real teams. This is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, it really takes me, me out of it. Yeah. Yeah, that always bugged me about like any given Sunday. Cause I remember I was like, this, oh, this is yeah, not yeah. a real team. Like, so that's tough, it, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so the, the crazy thing is with this, even before the lockout, the Baldwins had secured permission with the NHL to, to film a game and they were going to do a, a penguins uh, home game against the Chicago Blackhawks. And they mm-hmm. plan it all out and they, they get, you know, the footage is going to be uh, used for the movie. And this is going to be a big game. That's definitely going to sell out. And then the lockout happens and they're like, well, we got to go to plan B and they schedule an exhibition game between the penguins and I think the lumberjacks and they do that and they film it and it doesn't look like an intense, like Stanley cup game. They're like, this game is 
super boring and slow and like <laughs> just the the energy of it i guess didn't feel right and so they had to plan a whole nother scrimmage for like i think it's january of 95 they did another another game but now this time i don't know if it's because of the availability of the actual players but they used two echl teams like some teams that were coming up in like minor leagues to play against each other. And they're wearing the jerseys of the, the Penguins and the Blackhawks. And so it was like this really weird, like it's, it's supposed to be the teams, but it's not the teams. Um, so, so they do that. And they, I think they got a lot of the footage from the game, at least, at least the wide stuff there. But then uh, when I was researching, I found that most of the close-ups um, of the key goals and saves and body checks, were performed by local ex-college or ex-pro players with a few beer leaguers uh, playing along over the course of like a couple weeks. And they'd shoot these 12-hour shifts at nighttime and they'd pay <laughs> these players like $125 a night to just like get out there and play. And they'd be doing these intense, um, just like really short shots uh, throughout the night. Uh, and it was over like, a, I, didn't, I don't even know if it was like a couple months or a couple weeks, but the players were either on the ice or waiting around for hours at a time. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it's just hearing all that. And then you go and, and watch this and you're like, wow, like have like this whole new appreciation for what they did uh, with this, with this team. Yeah. I'm, I was already impressed and and now I'm more impressed. Like it's just, it is crazy. They pulled it off. Cause you rarely ever get all these things together, like to shoot at a real arena, to get real teams, like to get all this access they got. Um, is pretty pretty great uh because it does not does not happen very often um i think you even posted and i am really does do a great job shooting everything because you posted i think the shot where it's like he goes from like floor level of the game all oh, the way yeah. up to the to the like ceiling of the, the arena yeah, yeah through the roof to like van dam like hanging over the edge and it's, it was one of the coolest shots in the movie and i was just like this is like incredible first of all like Hyams in general He's he's a director that I feel like has had a million second chances because when you look at his filmography, you don't see a lot of true blockbuster hits, but there are like a lot of movies in there that became either video store favorites or have some kind of cult status. Like we were, we were talking a little bit earlier about it, but he's definitely like one of my favorite journeyman directors over the years, uh, as you and, and Patrick uh, Bromley put it. I adore sort of the bonkers direction his filmography took like first starting with busting with Elliot Gould in 74 and then he does Capricorn 1 in 78 and I'm a big Harrison Ford fan so when I discovered that he did Hanover Street I was like gotta gotta see this ASAP um, Outland we already talked about uh, starting in 84 Haim starts DPing all of his own movies like you know he starts with 2010 and then does Running Scared, which is, in my opinion, like way up there on the underrated buddy cop classics. Uh, it, it doesn't get talked about necessarily in the same level as like, you know, Lethal Weapon or you know, Die Hard with a Vengeance or you know some of these others. Running Scared is awesome, uh, mainly because Billy Crystal and Gregory Hines have insane chemistry. Uh, yeah yeah <laughs> yeah so then you know himes does the presidio and stay tuned and does all these other like, kind of weird choices leading into the 90s and then somehow he just like clicks because he gets you know time cop and then sudden death and he and jean-claude van damme somehow they nailed something there and 
he becomes this this director that is just shooting all of his own films. And for me, Haim's style is kind of identified by his use of like high contrast, lots of smoke, soft filters. I have this appreciation for just how he shot these films and they're all a little darker, all a little grittier. Um, and throughout the 90s, just carries that style through. And, and I love it. Yeah, that's huge to make great points about his uh, his style. It's like that there's a dark grittiness, like shadows and smoke he gets in there. And it's like it has a real like tactile nature. Like I just I like the look of it. Like it has a real there's just a feel to it. I don't know how to describe it. It just is like I, I do appreciate the way his stuff usually looks. And it's crazy because, yeah, a lot of I mean, to, to be your own director and or to be a director and be your own DP is like uh, does not happen very often. <laughs> like I imagine it's probably fairly challenging but uh yeah i was i was surprised this time i saw that credit i don't think i've ever really noticed before or if i had i forgot where it's like oh i was like he was his own dp like what i was yeah. like what is like um, you know like yeah. our guy he remind it reminds me of our guy uh stephen hopkins you know does the same thing shoots oh, yeah, yeah. his own movies and they they also are you know they're both kind of journeyman directors and so you look at sudden death and then go back and watch outland and you're like Oh, I definitely see a style here. Yes. Yeah. I was noticing that even like, cause I was watching stuff about sudden death and like outland. And I'm like, okay, I do see like visual similarities here for sure. Um, and yeah, no, he's, he's, he's definitely got a style. It's not super in your face. It's not uh, very pronounced necessarily, but if you watch it enough of his stuff, I think it's, it's pretty noticeable. So no, I'm, I'm a big Peter Himes guy. I do like him. He's a little all over the place. Uh, and his later stuff, I don't think has been as good, but like, yeah. um, very interesting filmography for sure. Um, trying to think, I, one thing we have to talk about, it's <laughs> just my favorite part of the movie is the mascot fight. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah. uh, always a highlight whenever I'd watch it. And, uh, it's funny because I was also reading, I'm sure you probably know this too, about how I guess there was a draft of this script that was more like a parody of action movies. And the mascot fight is like the one thing that survived to the to the actual movie. But I mean, it's yeah. out of context. It could be a little goofy to somebody, but I do I do love that fight. Like, I think it's um, and it's still pretty brutal. and It ends extremely uh, brutally, actually. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like the, the fight with, uh, uh, they call it Icy in the movie, but it's it's also, I think, known in real life as Iceberg, the mascot. Mm -hmm. And it's probably the crown jewel of the movie for me, because I, I, I mean, I've seen a lot of people online say this is their favorite Van Damme fight. It's, I mean, maybe maybe because of the novelty of it, uh, but it's, it's an iconic fight in his career, even if half of the reason is this comic effect. I think if people see it out of context, they're like, it's a joke, like, what the hell is this? Uh, but when you actually watch in the movie, you're like, oh, no, this is, this is badass. This is a great idea. Um, uh, one thing I noticed, you know, I think you brought up it uh, a little bit earlier, was how Van Damme has to temper his fighting skills to give this appearance of a normal guy in the movie. Because yeah. <laughs> he's, a, he's a firefighter. He's not going to know all this, all this, uh, you know, this martial arts. So to see it, as opposed to this world, world-class martial artist, you know, the best thing about this fight is how he's utilizing every inch of this kitchen uh, to just beat this mascot to a pulp. Yeah. And he's getting kicked <laughs> into food trays and using the meat slicer and the grill and the fryer. And, and, Throwing pepper and, into their eyes. <laughs> yeah, it's just like everything is like being used as a weapon. And I, the ventilation fan uh, 
finally throws or kicks the mascot into the industrial kish, uh, dishwasher and just it, they choke to death. And it's just, I was like, wow, this is, this is off the rails, but it's great. It's great. It's, I mean, it's like the main, I feel like it's probably if people haven't seen the movie or, or they don't remember it, they probably remember the mascot fight. So it's like, I had to bring it up. I think it's, I, yeah, I think it's super fun. And, uh, it's just very memorable, I will say. Yeah. It's, it's, this, uh, this is one of those only, this is one of those scenes, like we were talking about, this could only happen if the team and the organization were on board from the get-go with this movie. Right, so, yeah, yeah. You know, normally they're so precious about, like, our mascot, our logo, everything. Nothing can make, like, a, you know, a brand look, whatever. And the Howard, bad, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think Howard uh, realized right away, this is a cool premise. We gotta, we gotta roll this, this is gonna be fun. And sure enough, I mean, this is like there's only a hockey team that has their own action movie. Right. It's I, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a good point about like teams or, or any brand is like precious about their brand and logo and things like, uh, you know, if I mean, it would never happen. But if Disney let you set a movie at Disney World and do an action movie like a diehard at Disney, oh, yeah. you probably could not murder like a Mickey, Mickey and that guy <laughs> taking the Mickey suit. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, they would just be like, that's a bad visual, but uh, yeah, I want to see that movie. Yeah. I want to see Die Hard at Disney. Um, yeah. But uh, uh, I'm trying um, to think. Oh, yes, go ahead. <laughs> oh, I was, was going to mention some of these things early on in the movie, the way that they were kind of setting the stage. I love, uh, first of all, like we, we didn't really get into deep detail yet about Powers Booth, but I think he's just such a good presence in this movie. And I felt like he doesn't get as much praise as he should for it. People are always... You know, they bring up they bring up his name when it comes to like Tombstone or Rapid Fire, Extreme Prejudice, and definitely with Deadwood. But this is one where I felt like he took this archetype that I guess you could say started with Hans Gruber and just kind of made it his own and definitely made him a little bit more snarkier, a little bit more sarcastic, and then also just ruthless and just going, you know. So when they get up into this uh First, first off, they start with this weird scene where him and his team are loading weapons into this van in a warehouse before they even get to the game. And then he sets this little like penguin timer on the table or there's like a, a timer and turns it on. And then they all just start taking off. And the last thing you see is this little penguin explode. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> I guess that means that uh, he's supposed to be, uh, you know, he means business or whatever. But right. yeah, <laughs> it's so, uh he's I, an actor i always love there's those guys it's like him and like michael ironside i feel like there's a third guy i'm forgetting that are always like the heavies in like 80s 90s movies and they're just very they're great character actors who just come in and like kill it every time um and yeah i really i always like him in stuff like rapid fire He's great well, in Rapid Fire, though. He's like the good guy in that movie. Yeah, uh, the funny but... thing about Rapid Fire is, you know, he plays the good guy in that. And uh, I think his name is Raymond Barry, uh, plays the bad guy or one of the bad guys. And in this one, Barry plays the vice president. Oh, that's so right. They, 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 they swap roles. It was, yeah. it was kind of notable because <laughs> I had watched Rapid Fire recently as well. And I was like, ah, oh, that's that's funny. Forgot they flipped. Yeah, that's, that is funny. Um, No, he's great. Like you said, he's very... Uh... He's still kind of sarcastic and funny, but like very ruthless. Uh, I do love that he has like 
you know, the, the, like the terrorist team even is the same for Die Hard. Like because he has the guy with glasses who's doing the money transfer on the computer. Yeah. Like you always have to have that guy who's yeah. like sarcastic on the, the computer. Yeah. Yeah, the girl who's the mascot, and then he had all these guys that were like the gunmen, and then and then he had this guy which was really interesting because I, as I was looking into it, I realized he's he, he's a Pittsburgh actor. Was this guy named Jack Erdy who plays the henchman who goes to the house of the head chef for the penguins to force his wife to basically get the chef to let them into the executive suite. Cause it was like, yeah. this, this movie is all predicated on the access that they have to the luxury box so that they can basically take the, the vice president hostage. And so the head chef's the only one that can get them in there. And I, I thought that was an interesting uh, sort of you know, side plot that they have in order to do that. That guy's that guy's good too in that one scene. He's a real slimy guy, and that's a another dark touches movie. Is that they kill this nice, cute old couple. Uh, right. like, <laughs> I keep, I thought they were gonna let that woman go, and then he's like, "Nope, gotta kill you." And I'm like, "Jesus!" Yeah. Like so I mean, ruthless. <laughs> it's like killing everybody. Um, yeah. and I guess spoilers for sudden death on the yeah, there's a lot of murder, but the, uh, the there's a twist. I guess uh, you could call it um the character who you think is like the um oh god i'm blinking um from die dorian, hard dorian harwood is is like the um reginald bell johnson character yeah the Sar yeah. sergeant powell character the guy helping on the outside who like believes van damme is like we got a guy on the inside he's talking to him and then right. they flip it and i i don't know about you when i first saw this when i was a kid on like on tv i was shocked by the time oh, that, yeah. that this guy hallmark with, had turned on him and was working for the bad guys i was like I felt betrayed, I think. I think I felt yeah. personally yeah, betrayed. Yeah, that surprised me too, because like Hallmark was the guy that was like, hey, you know, you're doing too much. Now that I now that I think about it, you go back and watch it, and you're like, oh, it makes so much sense because Hallmark's like trying to be like, don't do anything, uh, McCord or you know, Darren McCord is, is Van Damme's character. And he's like, Don't do anything. We don't want to like, you know, get anybody hurt, but he's trying to keep him from messing up the plan, even though he's right. acting like he's a the good guy. So yeah, and as as they get into you know the game starting, I love the the fact that they they have these uh, like countdowns to the game to like count down to you know the start of the game, and that is sort of the uh, the time uh, device that that Hyams used for you know building towards the the game starting, and then as they move through it, of course you're restricted to the the periods of the hockey game. Um, the other thing that I loved about this as I was revisiting it was sort of the lost art of the tangible setting because in, in modern action movies now, you a lot of times you don't know what's like, you know, green screened or is something shot on the, the volume like uh, like the Mandalorian or like things don't always look like they're shot on location. And this is a movie that very much feels like, oh, this is all tactile. This was all shot at the Civic Arena. You can tell. Right, yeah. It's... You know, you know even, even things that maybe were shot in LA or in, or in other areas, it still feels very um, real and tactile. I was thinking that too. When I was rewatching. I was like, there'd be so much of this that was like CGI nowadays. Like, um, uh, I do think. I think the funny thing is, if they, they said they they couldn't quite fill out the arena with extras, so they they use like cardboard cutouts, which even right. in itself is more of a tactile uh, solution than like CGI crowd. Which you might not even if it's like a far away CGI crowd shot, you might not even notice that much. But um, oh, and they, but, and for shots, they would have like groups of like hundreds of people move for the next shot. Like sometimes they didn't have enough people. So they would just like 
Like, okay, everyone's going to move to this part of the arena now. Right. <laughs> Which I, I thought was really like, this is really a scrappy production that pulls off, like, you know, it still feels like a blockbuster action movie. Yeah. I mean, they pull off that you believe that it's like uh, a real game seven. And because um, sometimes they try to make things in movies too, like bigger deals. And if they don't have the means to pull it off you're like this does not seem like a, a championship game or a game seven like um the energy's not right or the crowd's not big enough or something like that but like um i think they pulled off and it's uh i mean again very exciting i again, another thing i have to mention kind of like the mascot fight that i think i think you posted about this too on twitter was how <laughs> how bananas it is that that van damme gets onto the ice uh, impersonate a goalie during yes. game seven because yes. he's like hiding out from the bad guys and goes into the training room of the penguins. And I guess the only way out is like, well, I'll go play goalie because the goalie gets their goalie gets sick or knocked out or hurt or something. And so he's in the training room and Van Dam takes his, his gear and goes out on the ice to hide. And they put him in the game <laughs> and it's like, yeah. it's ridiculous, but it's a great, I love that little touch. Cause I did not think they would, do that when i first watched this i'm not expecting to play play goalie in game seven (laughs) yeah and it was like it was almost like you had to like they were like okay we're not gonna do a hockey movie with van damme without getting him out on the ice and so it's such a cool scene to me because i feel like it's you know i'm also sure this is where the movie loses a lot of people but my theory on this is that this is like the scene in speed where they jump the bus over the gap in the freeway and it's it's sort of a metaphoric wall where there really is no way that they can get out of it. And if you throw up your hands and say, well, this is just ridiculous, then it's over for you. You're done with this movie. But if you're like, that is awesome, then you're in for the rest of the movie and you're just, you know, you're having the time of your life. And I just, I love that they did that. Um, Hyams is just shooting this whole sequence like incredibly well because he's util- utilizing the slow motion and this excellent sound design when, when McCord, uh, Van Damme's character makes the save. It's just this awesome moment. And it's really pretty poignant because, you know, in terms of his character, he's he's having to prove himself to his kids and himself, and he can't even believe what he's done. Right. <laughs> and and so, and then and then we get the payoff where you know we didn't mention it at the beginning, but his daughter is like teaching him this sign language, and his, and his son is there, and he gets this payoff where he just looks up into the crowd and does this, you know, I love you sign language, and his son sees it from the crowd and is like, holy shit. You know, like, yeah, he knows it's his dad all of a sudden. And it's right. like, yeah. yeah, just a just a funny moment. Um, I know I was talking to Mike Scott and he was like, he said, we, you know, we really uh, was disappointed that this, Van Damme didn't take this opportunity to do the splits when he saves the, the puck. <laughs> he's like, he's like, if you're going to do it in, at some moment in the movie, it's got to be here. And, you know, sure enough, uh, it doesn't happen. But I still love this moment. Um then, of course, McCord has to punch the other player to get out of the game and get sent back <laughs> to the locker room. I know there's a lot of people who are probably, like, picking this apart as far as, like, hockey rules or whatever would ha- actually happen. I just love it because it's just, like, he gets out back out of the game, and we got to see him play in this hockey game for a few, few minutes. And it's, yeah, this might be the other, like, high point of the movie for me. It's it's one of the high points for me, for sure. I, I actually surprised Mike to like this movie more because I know Mike's a huge hockey fan. So, right. uh, <laughs> his hockey expertise. But uh, it's funny because I think it's the first Van Damme where I can remember seeing where he doesn't do the splits at all, I don't think. There's no Van Damme splits. Right. right. Just... This was this was a, uh, you know, 
a new, new territory for him as far as like <laughs> he's dropping. like i'm serious now i can't do i can't do the splits in this one <laughs> like it's like his trademark thing at that point um no splits um no splits yeah <laughs> uh another another scene early on that i i both really enjoyed but then also like i didn't know all this stuff about the background of it was uh when van damme takes his son into the, the locker room before the the game starts mm-hmm. he gets to meet, meet all the different players and they actually had uh, Luke Robitaille. Uh, it was a big hockey uh, player at the time. It was just about to start his first actual season as a player on the Penguins. Uh, he's he's in there, and they I know they had to talk him into doing it because he was I think he was replacing uh, Mario Lemieux, who was taking the season off. And Robitaille's like, I don't know if I want to do this, but they they talked him into it, and he did, he does great. I mean, he's the he's the one where. Van Dam goes up to him and you know starts talking to him a little bit in French, and uh, Robitaille is like, it's like yeah he's he's you know does a great job you know talking to Van Dam and and his son. I thought that was that was really cool, and then they have another another guy whose name is Jay Caulfield, who's actually like an ex player of the Penguins. I think he had retired prior, but he's playing the the player that I think they talk about the most in the movie, which is the goalie Brad Tolliver. And he he was in there, you know, in this scene. And I guess what happened was Van Dam was not very happy because he came in and Tolliver's um, shirt's off. He's sitting on the, the bench there. And I guess what happened is Van Dam goes up to uh, Hyams and he says, tell him to put a fucking shirt on. <laughs> he's like, <laughs> oh, he's not happy. And, you know, we, we see the movie. So I think Hyams, I guess, convinced Van Dam to accept it as it is. But... Yeah, that was that was an interesting backstory about that scene. Yeah, well, because I, I know they had real hockey players, and I'm not again, I'm not familiar very much with hockey, so I know Mario Lemieux, I know that name, I know he was in the movie, but um, and I will say in that scene they do set up Van Dam has a hockey playing career in the past, so the the yeah. goalie thing's like a little less ridiculous, like he's never playing goalie before in his life, where he says yeah, like, I played a little <laughs> hockey in Canada. It's like the one throwaway line, so it's like it's a little. Like I, I would have no idea what to do because I've never been on skates. I've never, I mean, like I've never played right. hockey. I feel like it's like they gave him that one little line to make that later part a little more believable. <laughs> but yeah, um, I thought he, you know, he did, you know, that that yeah, that was I think pivotal in making that, you know, that scene at the end work is okay. He's not foreign to the the ice. He's done this before. Uh, I did think it was funny that then Tolliver's like, why don't you come by sometime and I'll show you a di- the difference between the game you play. And the game that I play, and then you know he ends up he ends up saving a a, a goal in the game. So right. I thought that was really cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I'm trying to think, I'm looking at my notes. I don't really have a whole lot else to mention. I guess besides the big finale, um, because it's a pretty spectacular um <laughs> like finale uh, uh and bad guy death. But I if you have more notes you want to uh, bring up, just start. You know, if you want to just roll oh, yeah, through those, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, sure. Um, you know, I thought I thought it was it was pretty cool that they got like actual announcers to do the game. Um, these guys, Mike Lang and Paul uh, Steigerwald, they were calling the game off of a monitor uh, that had the game playing or what the, the footage that they had actually shot. So they weren't calling it during an actual game, and you don't really oh, like, okay. you can't tell the difference at all. But it just feels like it works really well in the context of the movie, and and kind of pushing things forward. The game always kind of seems to do that effectively, like keep the movie uh, moving forward, which I really like. Yeah, that's another thing that's I think can be hard to replicate 
like in movies, but when you get real, uh, real newscasters or real broadcasters, real announcers, there's a little extra level of authenticity there. Cause, yeah. uh, I love that too. It's like when they, I feel like mission impossible to like fall out to that one. They get like, uh, you get like a real newscaster or something telling the news. I, it's, I believe that more, I guess, <laughs> like, yeah. um, I don't know how to describe it. Yeah. But like, but having, I could, I thought those guys were real announcers and I read, I'm like, Oh, they are, they were real hockey announcers, which makes sense. Cause they're pretty good at it. So, um, yeah, that's another thing that I like to add it to again, so much just real elements added to this, this fake hockey game. And it's like, but it, but it makes it seem so much more, uh, believable. So it's, it's, yeah, it's good stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, one, another thing that I really liked was, um, you know, a lot of these scenes where Van Damme is kind of like sneaking around the arena and you see all of these different, like I said, really tangible. And they look like, they don't look like sets. They look like places in yes, an arena. Yeah. Really makes it feel like, oh, this is, I can totally see why the Baldwins were like, we should do an action movie here because it all feels like stuff that could work well in the in the context of the movie um, and and have Van Dam kind of like hiding behind the scenes and no one sees that he's trying to disarm these bombs and take down the bad guys without it interrupting the game or without anybody knowing that there's anything going on. Right. Yeah. They take, I mean, they do, they take such good um, advantage of the location and the arena that they're in. It's like, um, I feel like they use like, it feels like they use like every space possible is what it feels like yeah. even the, even the things that like you don't even think about but you're like yeah that's a sports arena like when when he's trying to communicate with the cops and he somehow gets into the office where they control the electronic billboard outside the arena oh yeah yeah and he's like okay i need to i need to use the the billboard to to send a message and then he he gets on it and it says like building rig c4 will will try to disarm one of the cops uh with hallmark is all of a sudden like Oh, C4. I don't, I don't know if this was your experience, but at some point in the 90s, I feel like C4 entered the general vernacular because of action <laughs> movies. And we were all like, oh, C4, they mean they mean business. Right, yeah, that, I knew C4 was like heavy duty stuff yeah. is how I took it. Uh, and yeah, it was like in every action movie. They have C4, it's like, ooh, but you yeah. know, you're mess, not messing around now. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. I mean, like after, yeah, after uh, Hallmark kind of, it's revealed to be a bad guy. I like, I love the Van Dam. You know, in addition to like, he's just a firefighter. Somehow he becomes like MacGyver and <laughs> and starts to figure out how to like. He creates all these weapons. So he's got like this little like needle shooter that he dispatches a bad guy with, and then he uh, confronts Hallmark, or, or Hallmark comes back to him and he realizes he's a bad guy, and then he pulls out his son's uh, super soaker, and Hallmark's like, "What are you gonna do? Drown me?" And then he all of a sudden like he's got lighter fluid in it, so all of a sudden he it becomes like this flamethrower, but it's like super exaggerated. I still <laughs> love that action movies of the nineties. That um, Hallmark gets a death almost worse than anybody in the movie. He's burnt. Oh yeah, alive. Like I guess he does he pop up like a yeah a, a second later. He's like a quite... jump scare. <laughs> it's like he, a, he comes yeah. back up and he's like completely like mangled and burned alive, and then he's still trying to come after Van Damme. Uh, but uh, but loved all these different things that he was doing. Then he creates his like homemade bomb that he's going to take to to get into the uh, into the uh, executive suite. But there's oh the the line I love was when he's going back and forth. He steals Hallmark's uh, phone, and then he calls 
uh, Powers Booth's character, and they're going back and forth, and and Booth is like threatening him. He's like, I know where the bombs are, so I know where you're going. And Van Damme's just like, I'm coming here. And it was just, it was great. So, yeah, I, I, I love when it gets to that point where all of a sudden Van Damme realizes, like, okay, we're you know, getting to the end of the movie. And then he takes out the guys, you know, after he gets out on the ice, he's having to take out these guys in the locker room. Yeah, and, like training room, locker room. Yeah, that's a. Yeah, and he's just yeah. like, again, utilizing every part of the locker room to like kill these henchmen. And yeah, that was cool. Um, of course, you know, we, ha we have to have the shot where Robitaille scores at the last minute. So then, you know, that's buying Van Damme the extra time because he knows at that point, Van Damme knows, okay, when the game's over, I'm screwed. So he's like watching from the ice as a last minute, you know, the goal gets made. And now he knows, okay, I got to get up there. So then he climbs up onto the roof. And we talked about that awesome shot already of like Hyams pulls all the way up through the arena. Uh, but just taking out these these henchmen at the top, and then one of them hitting the the jumbotron. I always remember that being sort of like this iconic shot in the trailer to this. Oh yeah, and yeah. Which, which first of all, this is yeah, this has got a great trailer as well. Great tagline. They say like terror goes into overtime, and <laughs> yeah. So then that that final sh uh, showdown. Somehow he gets into the um, into the executive suite. And I don't know where, you know, Powers Booth's character, you know, disappears. But then after Van Damme saves his kids and he's like standing there talking to a secret service agent, you see Powers Booth and he's got the most ridiculous disguise on. I don't know if you remember <laughs> Yeah, this, that but fake mustache. It's like... He's got this big old mustache and this weird sort of like wig. And he just went like the extra mile. I don't know if he was like, I was like, oh, I'm definitely going to need a disguise after we... Uh, <laughs> but anyway yeah that was that was hilarious and then he like uh he takes van damme's daughter uh up to the roof and you have this whole like pursuit through the um uh, the corridors and these like tight spaces to get up there but i love 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 the the ending with the, the helicopter up on the roof oh my god yeah and then the, the payoff to i mean uh to killing uh, powers booth where it's like I don't know if that's how helicopter physics works, but how the helicopter like turns. Yeah, it turns on its like back. It like arc, it arcs back to like tail first. <laughs> and I remember Howard Baldwin talking about this because like I, when I saw it, I was like, they actually crashed this this helicopter into the, the arena. And, it, and he so he says that basically they had to bring in the largest crane in the United States to do this to hold this helicopter upright for this shot and then they were only going to get one shot at dropping it into the arena so they had something like five different cameras capturing it mm -hmm. and that's why you have all these different shots of powers booth looking out of the the helicopter screaming a couple of them look a little bit you know schlocky but they really they really were going to milk that that take for all that it cost them <laughs> yeah the, i was wondering how they did that because it it looks insane. I know they were in a real arena. And I'm like, how did they? Get... I think there's some like rear projection stuff with the helicopter, but like yeah. a couple of those, I'm like, I, I just think they dropped a helicopter, <laughs> like yeah. um, very controlled, and, I guess. But it looks very impressive for the most part. Yeah, apparently they had to um, you know, put something like they had something on the ice uh, that they they put over it before they dropped the helicopter on it that like still protected the ice. And yeah, I mean, I, I felt like that was the only way. That you could do something like this in the arena, you had to have 
some big thing without actually blowing up the arena. Right. Um, right. <laughs> uh, but it was, yeah, it was great. And then they have this really cool shot, uh, this reflection of the helicopter explosion in Van Damme's daughter's glasses when she's like looking down. Uh, but yeah, and then they, they wrap it up super quickly after that because they have like uh, Van Damme uh, being wheeled out on a stretcher. And of course his son, who's been kind of doubting him this whole time, or like, he's not really a firefighter and all this stuff. He's like, you should have seen my dad. And then, and then uh, the daughter's like, my daddy's a firefighter. And that's just like, yeah. they <laughs> kind of put a bow on it. Just to, just to let you know, in case you, you know, weren't sure, he had redeemed himself. <laughs> it's like, did he do enough to earn your love, kids? Jesus. Yeah, like, yeah. Oh, the son I think... is like such a, such, such a jerk, like the whole movie to his dad. He's kind of a shithead. I, I was going to say, I don't, I, I feel bad saying this always about kid actors, but like, I don't know if the kids are that good. I mean, the characters aren't exactly written well. I mean, uh, and the son especially is written to be kind of like a little shithead. Um, yeah. He's mean to his sister. Uh, he's a dick about his dad. Like, he's just kind of like, I don't know. He's just not very likable. <laughs> and then like yeah. the daughter's kind of annoying in a way. I mean, I, I feel bad saying that, but it's like the way they write her, she's like, like why well, she gets kidnapped to a powers booth and she's like, my daddy's going to find you. But it's like the, t you know, it's like, yeah, it was very, very stereotypical, very stereotypical right. over the top. It was like, oh boy, these kids. But, uh, and then he goes through all this shit. He gets, it's like, he did everything. He's like, I played goalie and topped a goal in game seven. I saved the building from terrorists. Like what more do you want? What me? more do yeah. you want children? I've done everything. Yeah. <laughs> um what if they were like you're still a fire marshal like yeah. four, four fire marshals or um i don't know i again i feel always that's like a cool job I, I even as a kid i was like i don't know it seems like a pretty cool gig kid you got game seven tickets maybe shut the fuck up about your dad. yeah i mean you know, your dad's got you game seven by the way also very funny that um you know powers booth plan kind of hinges on there being a game seven but we, we don't have to get into that it's true i didn't even think about that uh he was, I guess he was really counting on it. Also, they don't finish the game, right? Because no. they're in sudden death. So no. I always wonder, are they going to pick that game up at another arena? Are they going to go back to Chicago and finish off? Like, um, Yeah. Maybe, uh, and, and the other thing is, um, you know, I don't know if this would even ever get uh, pulled apart, but uh, what happens when a, a player that's not actually one of your players uh, has a game-saving goal? Like, they, they step in and start playing. Yeah. So just, just. You know, this is all stuff that's just uh, yeah. to throw out the window because it's an action movie. But uh, yeah, it was really cool. Um, yeah, it's I, it's a very fun action movie. Um, I think nowadays, like I said, the only reason it went from like my favorite Van Damme to second favorite, I think I'm just like the more I watch Hard Target, like the more impressed I am at Hard Target. <laughs> like, Sudden Death is still great, but like uh, Hard Target seems getting better and better. And uh, this is still super fun. I could. I it's it's very watchable. Um, like I said, I almost feel like I have seen it too much, but I'm sure the next time it's on TV or something, I will still end up watching it. It's still fine. Like I have nothing. I'm not. I'm not like turning on or anything. I'm just like yeah. maybe I've got my fill. You know. Uh, yeah, it's um, definitely. I mean, it's 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 become like a comfort movie for me, where you know it's just like come back to it. I'll you know quote scenes and things like that that are that are fun. Um, I always think it's funny when. When Powers Booth is like, would you like like it if I filled your little mouth with spiders? So the girls yeah. like a random so like random. Was that, was that <laughs> It's yeah, it was. That's a weird line. I'm like, do you have spiders on hand? What a weird yeah. threat! What a weird threat. Um, yeah. yeah, I don't know, but it's 
it's a it's a movie that I mean it delivers a lot. I feel like with it packs a lot into under two hours and is it never boring, even though no. um they I can't remember how soon Powers Boothman get into uh the vice president's VIP booth, but um it, I mean it gets moving pretty quickly and it just it keeps moving and even when you think it's kind of like the he's got his kids back, it's all good. Powers Booth is still that little extra wrinkle about like, oh, Powers Booth is still here and like we have to kill him. And it's just uh, the finale, it all builds to a great, a great finale. <laughs> so. Yeah, and he's still, you know, Powers Booth still gets to set off at least one bomb. So that was, you know, kind of cool to see, you know, the pandemonium ensue. And then, you know, then Pandem still gets to save the day. So yeah, it was just, you know, one of those movies where I think at the time it kind of got lost in the you know, lost in the, the milieu of, of films that came out. Because 95, even though it's, you know, we always talk about 99 as like a big movie year or, you know, some of these other movie years. 95 had a lot going on. I mean, it's not a lot of necessarily the great prestige films, but it's like a lot of great action movies and a lot of great fun, like blockbusters, regardless of how you feel about some of them. It was like, like Heat came out in 95, Die Hard with a Vengeance. Oh, yeah. which it's, it's also like, you know, you're making make this movie the same year as Die Hard with a Vengeance. So he's coming up against that. Bad Boys, Desperado, Crimson Tide, GoldenEye, uh, you know, Braveheart, um, you know, sort of Waterworld, which I will defend to my death. Um, <laughs> all these films happening in the same year and sudden death. You know, it was Van Damme making his uh, his run at it. Yeah, I it's... Uh... It, it there's just a lot going on in 95 especially in the action movie genre and i mean this is even the point where um schwarzenegger and stallone and uh i guess will still is doing well, he's kind of pivoting i mean die hard with vengeance comes out and that's a big hit i think i read something like that made more money in its opening weekend than sudden death made in its first run or something domestically oh, yeah. uh yeah. so but, but, but like next year arnold's doing like eraser and like they're all yeah. on like the I think the downswing a little bit of like full on action because then Stallone's trying to do Copland a couple of years after yeah. this and Stallone had is... Judge Judge Dredd in ninety five. Right, which I don't know how much of a hit it was, and it was critically paid. Oh, yeah, no, it was I mean it wasn't too what they were <laughs> expecting or hoping for at all. And even and that's even with like a comic book, you know, IP behind it. Right, right. They're definitely the 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 signs of slowdown were showing, I think by 95, like the chinks in the yeah. armor were happening. Like, um, so yeah, I don't know. It's, and it's funny. Cause even a few years before it's like, things are still going great. I feel like you know, cliffhanger and true lies is a huge hit in 94. And it's like, um, but I just feel like something had turned, starting to turn by 95. It was like, yeah. So, um, but yeah, we were very spoiled too, with great movies and great action movies in yeah. general. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> And Van yeah. Damme, you know, we, you know, this was something where following sudden death, I think, I don't know if you were as conscious of this, but I remember after that, it felt like there was a decline a little bit or there, you know, he wasn't, Van Damme in sudden death felt like an event for me still in a way that like after that double team and uh, knockoff, which, you know, no disrespect to Cy Hart, those were really fun movies to me. And I feel like even though they were both pretty big disappointments, they were kind of a riot and, you know, spectacle and, you know, Van Damme's doing some 
weird uh, comedic stuff in knockoff as well, but they were, they were still enjoyable. But Sudden Death was the last time I remember there being sort of like some hype leading up to a theatrical Van Damme movie. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I uh trying to pull up exactly. I know it's like he's still doing stuff, but yeah, it does feel like this was like mm-hmm. the big Hollywood yeah. shot. And then it's kind of like it definitely starts to he's on the backside of like a peak at this point. You know, it's like the yeah. he's on the downside because uh, let's see. The Quest, Maximum Risk, right, Double yeah. Team, Knockout, Legionnaire, oh, Universe Soldier, The Return. Uh, it's like so, it's yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then and then I mean I've heard from a lot of people, especially more recently, he's he's getting some more interesting entries into his filmography. We've got JCVD, which was really really interesting. I thought Great. Yeah, I, I really love that movie. Um, Universal Soldier, Day of Reckoning. Mm-hmm. That was one that. Um, and another one that a lot of people you know talked to me about and I was like I got to see this and it lived up to the hype uh, again he's doing something different and I wondered if back then if he had taken some of these risks and maybe not had you know I, I know there was more than just you know he wasn't taking risks I know that there you know he talks about his well-documented like drug problems and he was kind of an egomaniac in some places so there was a lot of stuff combined into that uh, that may have played a role but if if he would have taken some different risks or tried to do some different things as opposed to i'm only going to be the one guy on the poster with my name uh, maybe we would have seen something different yeah that's true and yeah he definitely had drug problems and ego problem (laughs) like i think he'll admit to all those things um but yeah he's just done some good work in the past like 10 ish years like JCVD is pretty cool and interesting. Um, I never watched the Amazon show, but I kind of wish I had because it got canceled yeah. way too quickly. The yeah. it's a John Claude Van Johnson. It was like the yeah, and mm-hmm. um, he's great. And, that, and that one, he's got like yeah. comedic chops in that too. Yeah, know? he's funny. And he that, did some funnier yeah. stuff. Um, and yeah, he can do. I like. I do like old sad Van Damme though. He's good at that. <laughs> like yes, he's yes. he's embraced the age. I know some Steven Seagal is a guy who will not embrace that he's uh, oh, no. sixty. Maybe I don't. Know, he's up there and he's still like yeah. dyeing the hair and the goatee and wearing coats to cover the weight and like um wants to be the biggest badass it's just like oh boy um yeah. i appreciate and, van damme's humility at this point <laughs> yeah and i know and i know you're a tarantino fan I've, i'm always of the mind i like i've thought about this for a couple of years now and on my wish list of you know hollywood you know dream projects to happen would be i'd love to see tarantino bring van damme into a project and give him sort of like, and I know that there's more to it than this, but give him sort of the Travolta revival and, and figure out a way to like give him a, a new chapter beyond just what you know he's done. Because I, I think that when you put Van Damme with a talented director, he'll give you a performance. And especially if that director has that, you know, they have in mind what they want from him. He, he does it. Yeah, he definitely he definitely needs that. Uh, I feel like he had that with Peter Hyams too, um, yeah. because Time Cop and Sun Death are both very good Van Damme movies, and I feel like they must have enjoyed working together a little bit. And uh, he got good performances out of him. So yeah, I, well, I mean, speaking of all this, I know you had an idea for a game uh, yeah. regarding Van Damme post sudden death. Uh, do you want to uh, introduce this idea? Oh yeah, yeah. So uh, so what I what I called this was the uh, JCVD armchair agents where uh, <laughs> uh 96 to 99 
So where I, I tasked you with coming up with a movie from each year from 96 to 99 that would potentially um, give Van Damme maybe a bigger pop culture footprint or have a little bit more success than maybe the titles that he actually did do in those years. And so we could each kind of go back and forth and say, you know, what we chose and what we would like to see Van Damme uh, doing and maybe, um, oh, also the, the role that they're replacing. So if we're dropping him into a movie, who's he replacing and what, what characters is he playing? Okay. Yeah. Do you want to do like go year by year and just each say the movie yeah. and then go to the next year? So yeah, go back and forth. Okay. So yeah, 96. Uh, I'm curious what you got. <laughs> okay. So 96, I, I went back and forth on a few different, uh, a few different titles. I have one that is the one I'm going to officially go with. And then, and then I'll tell you the, the second one. I'm not, I'm, so I'm kind of cheating, but the second one, I'm just going to dismiss altogether. So the, the 96 title I had was daylight. Okay. And have him uh -huh. uh, replacing Sylvester Stallone. This one felt like a safe choice for me because it's kind of like a sudden death type movie already. Cause he's, he's this normal guy who's having to step in and save these people. Again, it's not die hard but it's still sort of a disaster movie. And I feel like you could slot Van Damme into Daylight and he would probably do just as well as Sloan did. And Daylight was a little bit more of a, a success. I think it was a modest success, but um, still did pretty well. Were you were you a fan of Daylight? A movie I actually got to see in a theater uh, randomly. I don't know. It's like I went with like a whole, I think the whole family went. Uh, and I was I remember being like, this is very intense. I remember thinking that I was like, oh, this is so intense. Like, what a scary situation. <laughs> and yeah. uh, but I, it's funny because Daylight was uh, one of the ideas I was circling. It did not pick it, but I did think it'd be very easy to slot Van Damme into that project because I don't yeah. remember Stallone making much of a difference. Like in the, I don't think he's bad in it, but I think you could put Van Damme in there very easily and it would be just as fine. Honestly, yeah. There's, it's kind of a big, not a big cast, but it's an ensemble cast. And like, yeah, he's the leader, but. Um, I think Van Damme could have done it just fine. Yeah, I, I thought about that one. So that's that's a good yeah. one because I a movie also people don't talk about much anymore. Daylight. Yeah, exactly. It's it's not something that stands out as this big pinnacle on on Stallone's career, even though it wasn't a bomb. But it's just kind of like if you like Daylight. I mean, I, I talk to people all the time who are like, "Yeah, I remember that. I love Daylight." But it's just a different kind of movie. It's more of a, like a disaster movie than anything. Yeah, um, I, I like it. I remember liking it, but it's been a long time. <laughs> yeah, um, the the backup choice that I ultimately eliminated as like my go to what I'm going to decide on was Dragonheart. Oh, and okay. I, know, <laughs> I, I thought some people were going to call me crazy for this one, uh, just because it's like Van Damme has a you know the accent is obviously going to get in the way because this is set in like you know medieval England and there's all this. But I was just thinking it'd be interesting to have seen Van Damme explore something of like fantasy at some point or something like that. And I thought Dragonheart was a movie that was already a modest success, but I don't know. I just was like, Van Damme never did anything where he had to act against like, you know, CGI to that level or, or things like that. And, and I just thought that was like an interesting choice, but ultimately I eliminated it because I was like, nah, I don't, I don't think it, I don't think it would go there. Yeah, that is interesting. Cause I, yeah, I don't think he ever did any kind of like, fantasy type movie he did sci-fi a couple times but like uh yeah. yeah i can't think of a, that yeah that would have been a movie i don't know if i've seen all the way through i have a friend that like loves Dragonheart. it's like he's like a big Dragonheart guy oh um, yeah. yeah yeah i mean i think you you might you might enjoy it i mean i don't have as much affinity for it as like 
say like the one that like brought me the Prince of Thieves, where I was like, I would I would bank on you enjoying that one. But Dragonheart was a success. I think it got like two or three sequels as well. Um, they were like, I think they were direct to video, but still like they they actually had something going with that. Uh, but yeah, again, it's it's sort of the movie that hasn't had a huge lasting uh, cultural footprint. Right, right. I remember that more being like the butt of a South Park joke at one point when they, yeah. <laughs> me and my friends still reference that because it's so, my friend lost his mind. It was so random. Like when they're in that fantasy land in South Park and then like, they're like, how do we get out of here? And then, <laughs> to dragon heart dragon flies in it's like boy shop will be back and he was yeah. like is that a dragon heart reference like what a pull um oh, yeah, it really hasn't left much of an impact it's weird um okay so 96 uh i 96 97 were tough for me and i now i just realized because I did, I did this kind of over a period of time that 96 97 i'm having van damme replace the same actor back to back but oh well <laughs> like uh my 98 99 picks are more fun i think but uh 96 i want to see van damme take over the seagal role in executive decision oh okay. but i want him to live because that apparently was what i heard the original plan was was for Seagal to live but they all hated him so much he was such an asshole they killed the character off without him knowing and, See, that would have been cool yeah like yeah. i think he could, he could have played like the i'm the tough guy um role and like if he lived you know and like made it onto the plane with everybody else yeah. uh because i really like that movie a lot so i don't mind him getting rid of seagal because he just feels like he would have like um i don't know taken up yeah you just try to take up all the screen time like um and this comes back to kind of what we were saying about it would just take him needing to be willing to share the billing and be like, okay, I'm second to Kurt Russell, which right. I think at that point, maybe, maybe Van Damme was still not open to. Right. He might've had an ego problem too. Like Seagal. I don't know, but I, I, I know Seagal was just like a massive asshole in that movie and they just yeah. couldn't, no one could stand him. Like Johnny was has like some crazy stories about him. Like, I think like, threatened to beat him up or like he was gonna oh. beat like wasamo up and it was just like he was just such a bully and a jerk and it's just like and they were just like oh get this guy out of here because he's supposed to make it farther into the movie um but they were just like nah just get him out of here <laughs> so yeah. um would have been interesting um uh so yeah that was my pick was the executive decision from 96 so what what do you have for 97 okay so 97 now as i was looking through these i i landed on this one because i was like the formula worked it was an easy pick for me because I would love to see them do more together. It was putting Van Damme in The Relic, directed by Peter Himes. Oh, and okay, that's good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> replacing the Tom Sizemore role. So he's still oh, you know, at okay. the top of the billing, but he's doing, a, again, another role that doesn't require martial arts. He's going into more of like a straight up, you know, detective investigating this series of horrendous deaths by the creature and... I mean, it, it was a it was a cool movie, and it was another one that was, you know, not a huge success, but maybe you know maybe with Van Damme attached to it, you know, the, it would have been more notable, and people were like, oh, he's doing something more genre, but he's sticking with Himes. I don't know. I I just felt like that would be an interesting choice, and maybe they could continue working together. Yeah, I would like another team up. And before you even said who you were casting, I was like, I like it. I'm like, I put him in the movie somewhere. I don't care. <laughs> like, um. Because they work, I like him and Hyams together. Although that's a movie where I think if Hyams was his own uh, cinematographer in that movie, he was that he might have failed himself. Because my problem with the relic is it's so goddamn dark; it's oh, so yeah. hard to see anything. <laughs> like he gets darker and darker, and that the same thing that happened with um, End of Days, 
he, oh, he yeah. Got, end of days is extremely dark as well. So, you know, I always tell people when you're going into the, that era of Haim's career, he just turned everything down. <laughs> He's like, turn the lights down. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. So, um, I'm on board with the, with him in the relic. I like that. Uh, so my 97 pick was again him replacing Seagal because like I'm okay with like like give me give me John Coleman Dam over Steven Seagal. I like them, you know. I Seagal's early stuff I'm fine with, but if it goes on, it's like oof. So uh I want to see Van Dam in Fire Down Below. Which oh, is, okay. Which I think would be a better movie with Van Dam. Like um yeah. Uh, I don't really like Fire Down Below. I think it's like very average. Um, but it could have been like another Nowhere to Run type thing. Yeah. Or, uh, I, like maybe a... I, this is what I was I was hoping for was like, okay, what's something where Van Dam might even improve it? Yeah, and I think if if you're telling me you've got Van Dam over Seagal, I most times would be like, okay, I like that better. <laughs> so, yeah. um, yeah, I mean that I just saw that one. And I was like, oh well, I put Van Dam in. Says a goal, and it's a better movie, I think. So, um, yeah, that was that was my name. So, fire down below. So, okay, cool. Um, now for my 1998, uh, again, this is not where I'm not, I'm not saying Van Dam is is improving upon this role. I'm for this one, I just thought, hey, let's look at something where putting him in it would be interesting and would allow him to maybe, you know, try to stretch himself as an actor and working with some, some more heavyweights. And that was. Uh, putting him in Ronin in the oh. Jean Renault role. So he's, wow, yeah, he's yeah. Re- replacing another French actor um, in a role where, you know, he's playing second to De Niro and, you know, it's, you know, putting himself in that kind of situation and seeing if he can hold his own. I think that would be interesting uh, to have him in a more serious role and see where that could have gone because the movie, you know, it was a hit. It's not all on Van Damme's shoulders, but would still be interesting to see Hey, how can he play, you know, in a in a role like this where again he's not doing a lot of martial arts, but he's stepping up to the plate and trying to, you know, act with someone who's you know, very, very uh, you know, well acclaimed. <laughs> yeah, to watch him act against or with even De Niro would be fascinating. I would have loved to see that. Like, um, yeah, that's a really good. I'm my favorite one you've done yet. I, I he could have fit right in too because they were all. I think the rest of the gang is all European people, right? It's like yeah. De Niro's the one American. Am I remembering this wrong? Yeah, I, I, I think I think that's correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm like, oh yeah, it fit right in. Like it's like, and he, and he could use his actual accent. I mean, for you know, and it would be less, right. you know, be like we don't have to explain it as much. Um, oh man. Okay. Yeah, I like that one. That'd be that'd be good. Um, also reminds me, I need to rewatch Ronin because it's been a long time since I've seen that movie. Yeah, <laughs> um, great movie, great uh, Frankenheimer. Yes, uh, the great director. Um. Okay, so now my next two, I'm not even going to say necessarily that Van Damme improves the movie or that I don't like the person he's replacing, but I think it'd be interesting because uh, the 98 one was the first one I came up with, which was let's give Van Damme the Deacon Frost role in Blade to go against Wesley Snipes. This was my backup choice. This oh, was actually, okay. I, I was about to, to pick this and I went with Ronan, so I'm really glad you said this because I was like, if he would have been open to playing a villain... This would have been awesome to see him go up against Wesley Snipes. Oh my God, yes! Because one of the I don't know if it's even a problem. It might be it might be designed that the Blade one in the is Deacon Frost is not really like a physical match for Blade until he becomes like the Blood God at the end. Um, in Blade two, Nomak is way more of a physical like match for Blade. Um, so you probably you might just switch up like 
that and if you had Van Damme as Deacon Frost, um, I would love to see them a fight too. I don't know if they've ever had like an on-screen fight, Van Damme and Wesley Snipes. I don't think they have. Yeah, I don't. I don't think so. I, and I, that that was the reason why that would have been my pick. Is yeah, that, you know, a lot of these like interesting matchups. You know, uh, by the way, I love that you are also a fan of Blade too, because that's like I, I don't know. I've I've always been kind of on the island of like I like Blade two a little bit more than Blade one. I and, go back uh, and forth with myself constantly. Like I cannot yeah. make up my mind which one I like better. They're both like, for me, I five out of five movies, like five stars. Like I, I, but I don't know which one I like better. I think it's almost like my mood. Like, yeah. um, but I, yeah, I love liked, both. Of them. I yeah. like that they created this new kind of vampire that you know eats vampires and yeah. All, you know, <laughs> and then of course the soundtrack was incredible. So yeah, play two, incredible. <laughs> yeah so i mean and i think that would improve i think the first blade i i would like the bad guy be more of a physical match i would just love to see them have a fight because they're both legitimate martial artists right. so if we could put right. egos aside i would love to right. have like a fight on screen um and i feel like van Dam could pull off that bad guy because the rest of vampires are kind of euro trash type uh, udo kier it's like so you could change yeah. there's little things you have to change but it's also I think I looked it up, and I think Van Damme's about ten years older than, than uh, oh my God, I'm blanking on Deacon Frost. Uh, Stephen Dorff. Thank you, Stephen Dorff. <laughs> but about ten years older, but like they're vampires, so even yeah. if he looks, it doesn't. The age doesn't really matter. But um, uh, yeah, I just would have. I was that was the first one I got excited about. Where it's like, oh, I would love to see this actually happen. So yeah, that um, would have been a a really show stopping fight between. Yeah. Van even though and I love. Snipes. I love Steven Dorf in the movie as Frost. I think he's a pretty good bad guy, just not the physical match, but, um, but yeah, I think it'd be cool. So that was the one yeah. that I came up with 98. So, um, okay. okay. 99 last one. Okay. <laughs> so, so 1999 was probably the most difficult one for me mm -hmm. because, you know, there's a lot of movies that are iconic that have like, you're like, I don't know if I want to take this person out of this movie and change it. And I don't know if Van Damme could actually even like, you know, fit in that. But I found one where I feel like, you know, if you did a few tweaks to the plot or to the character, you could fit him in really well. And this was also kind of the same sort of rationale that you had for putting him up against um, Wesley Snipes was the corrupter and having him replace Mark Wahlberg in the in the corrupter. And I chose this specifically because I would think it would be so interesting to see Van Damme and Chow Yun-Fat on screen together. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I had definitely thought about this one, too. Um, so I'm glad you went with this one because I looked at that poster and I just it's like both Chai and Fat and Mark Wahlberg on the poster. And I'm like, I could just see easily replacing Mark Wahlberg with Van Damme. <laughs> and like, yeah. I would love to see Chai and Fat and Van Damme in a movie together. Um, I, you know, I think it would be you still have the, the dynamics a little bit, even though I know that there's a lot of stuff in the movie about uh, the Wahlberg character being you know, this American, this white cop. And so you'd have to like, you know, twist a little bit of the dynamics to, you know, have this European guy coming in and, and being the, the cop as well. But I, I feel like they've gotten away with so much more in the past that it wouldn't be that big of a deal. And you could increase and amp up the martial arts component and give the character a little bit more physicality than what Wahlberg had. And it's a Van Damme, Chow Yun Fat movie. <laughs> yeah, I'm on board. Um... And I mean, Van Damme's played uber American guile and street fighter. So, you know, right. whatever, it's fine. <laughs> like <laughs> can make it work. Um, yeah. yeah, but I'm glad you finished that one. Cause that was one of my like picks I was thinking about. Um, okay. So last one, um, I'm going to go, 
this was hard 99 because i felt like the <laughs> the landscape of movies had changed you know it's like right i'm looking at very different movies popping up in 99 from from 95 um but i went with deep blue sea and i'm gonna put van damme in the thomas jane part okay <laughs> uh <Awesome>. yeah <laughs> I, that was another one that I, I kind of circled a little bit because I was like, oh, maybe, you know, because, again, this is like him interact. Hello? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh, sorry. You cut out there for a second. Sorry. Um... Oh, OK. It, yeah. No, no. It was just like this was the same sort of thing that I was circling with the relic was, you know, he, you know, it's horror, it's creatures. He's, you know, I think that could have worked well. Yeah, I mean, it's like a thing I really haven't seen him do. It's like, uh, so yeah, that and then like an ensemble cast. The movie was a pretty big hit, I think. I mean, uh, yeah. so uh, I was thinking of things that would be hits for him. And it's like, um, yeah, and I was like, he could do that part. Like, I mean, I like Thomas Jane, that movie. And I like that movie's really goofy fun for me. But like, um, I was like, throw Van Damme in. It'd be fun. Like, I just, I was like looking at stuff. And I was like, sure, Van Damme and Deep Blue Sea. I, it was like, uh, I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll make it work. So, uh, but yeah, that was, um, that was my pick, Deep Blue Sea for 99. So well, that was a very fun game. Thanks for coming up with that. So Yeah, absolutely. I'd, I'd love to see any of those. So. <laughs> yeah it's like i don't want to get necessarily get rid of the movies as they exist but i'm like i want to see the alternate van damme version too so right right um but yeah anything else you wanted to say about sudden death or any anything before we wrap up um you know i feel like we we said our piece i i really encourage anyone who hasn't taken the time to check out sudden death go back and you know see it for the first time because it's incredible and it's one of my kind of staples of, of 90 action that I, I put up there. I, again, also Peter Himes explore his filmography because, and, and that's something that I, I didn't realize a lot of his movies meant as, as much as to, to other people as they do. And then, I, so as I talk to people online, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm a fan of this or that. And sudden death, it's just been encouraging to hear that other people have enjoyed it as much as I, as I did. And, you know, hear it hear it uh get its praises so yeah i'm really really glad to have gotten to come on here and talk about it with you a, a favorite comfort movie and uh thanks for for letting me you know dig into this with you matt oh yeah no problem thank you for coming on and talking about it i mean movie we both clearly like a lot so um yeah it's i think it's comfort with me too i think it's because i've seen it so many times i know the beats i'm just like um when i rewatch it i almost thought like i don't think i even need to rewatch this for the show but i always i always do anyway just to be, just to be safe but one of those ones i've seen that many times where i was like i could probably just get by a memory <laughs> but um a couple little things i forgot so it worked out but no this was super fun uh always like talking about van damme stuff too so yeah. um glad to uh talk about it with you so yeah thank you again for coming on and uh i guess i will let you go ahead and just plug all the stuff people could follow you on social media and all that stuff Oh yeah, so I'm on Twitter at Jackson Boren. Um, I you know love connecting with others who who enjoy movies and you know chatting movies and stuff. Uh, I'm on a few other podcasts uh, coming up, I know that in the next month I'm going to do a couple uh, episodes of Uncut Gems podcast. Um, uh, at some point in October, I'll probably do uh, another podcast called Nostalgia Cast um, uh, with with Darren Lundberg. And uh, yeah, if, if people are interested, you know, you know, follow me on Twitter and I've, I, I'm always posting the stuff that I'm on the podcast that I, I guest on and I really, really enjoy this. So yeah, thanks. 
Oh yeah, no problem. I, uh, I, I feel like, yeah, I must, I feel like I first found your Twitter. Cause I feel like you're always posting like great, like old commercials or movie trailers or stuff. And yeah. like, this guy has like a treasure trove of like nostalgia. He's pulling out stuff. I like, you know, like ads, old ads for movies. I'm like, where's he even finding this stuff? So, um, very fun person to follow on Twitter, uh, and very friendly, which is always, is always good too. So, um, likewise, I, I feel like, you know, Matt, I feel like you're always one of those people that's very positive and putting, you know, positive energy out there as far as, you know, the, the film community on Twitter. And so that's something that I appreciate and try to try to do the same. I, I try my best unless we're talking about like Jurassic world dominion. And then I, <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I can't hold my, uh, my thoughts anymore. Um, and also I just don't tweet that much. So it helps to uh, avoid conflict. Uh, it's like, I just kind of keep it minimal, but, uh, but yes, everyone should be following you. And uh, I will say for our stuff, it's the usual. Um, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at Film Feast Pod. You can follow me on Twitter at Maplet87. And you can follow me and the podcast on Instagram at Film Feast, all one word. Um, and that's it for this time, guys. We'll see you next time. Bye, everybody.